0: The Protect Your Neck Podcast. Top five light heavyweight fights in MMA with special guest co-host Simon Head. As per usual, we went deep, ladies and gents, so strap in. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak tree. People sitting on porches thinking how things used to be. Dark night. It's a dark night. Dark night. it's a dark night What is up you savages? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Tom, analysts is work you can find over at MMA and on this year program the Protect Your Neck podcast. We break down high-level MMA, but we do it in a bit of a different way, especially in the days of today. We don't usually like to timestamp the shows, but yes, it is the year of 2020 where the COVID-19 epidemic is up upon us. Thankfully, this program has other forms of entertainment to lean on, like this here top five show where I take a guest co-host and we dive back into the history. Uh, Today's topic is going to be top five light heavyweight fights. A great topic and a great guest co-host, a first-time guest co-host, a fellow MMA junkie colleague. He is Simon Head, at Simon Head on Twitter, where you can find him. Simon, what's up, dude?
1: How's it going, Dan? It's great to be on. Great to be on. And, uh, yeah, we, it's a strange, strange world we live in right now. Everybody's everybody's stuck indoors, but, you know, thankfully, things like UFC Fight Pass and all that sort of stuff are are our friend in times like this. And uh, we've lent on that pretty heavily as we've uh, put this thing together. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking some fights. I am as well, man. I am
0: as well. Um, it, it's always good to have a, a fellow colleague join me. But more importantly, just somebody that didn't matter where where, where you work for, Simon. You know, we've all worked, wore many hats in our experiences so far. But uh, you're someone I've always respected. Uh, your, your opinion, uh, you know, you've been at a lot of these shows. Perhaps some of these fights maybe we've talked about. Maybe you've been at some of those. We'll, 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 we'll get into all that. Uh, and more. So it, it's always great to have someone that comes from a, 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 different perspective, albeit, you know, we're, we're covering the same beat, so to speak.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're much more on the sort of analysis side and, you know, breaking stuff down either before the fact or after the fact, whereas I'm maybe more on the reporting side of it. And, you know, I think you need both strands of that. If you want proper coverage, you want full comprehensive coverage, you need both. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'll I've been there on on Press Row watching watching some of some of the craziest fights I've ever seen in my life and uh it's it's a real privilege to be in there and 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 to be up close and personal watching some of that stuff it it absolutely makes the mind boggle to see the fact that they can get through stuff like this and some of the fights we're going to talk about today are the sort of fights that you sort of watch them back and you think they have to change these people you know these these people must be changed as a result of these fights because to go through the sheer amount of physical and mental trauma that they endure over the course of whether it be three fives or five fives, it really, it really, sorry, it really is what sets these guys apart from almost any other sport on a planet. I really like that you said the word
0: changed because I feel like that's going to be a theme for large parts of both our lists. Without without even looking at your list, because by the way, as for, for if you if you don't know. As per usual, me or my guest co-host, so, so today me and Simon, we don't know each other's list here. We're going to find out what they are right along with you. And if you were able to subscribe your list, of course, it's at the PYN Podcast on all social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and especially Twitter. Uh, we will also get to your list when we get to our honorable mentions at the end of the show. But yes, back to the word change, because that, that seemed to be a theme, which I... I'll save for when we get to our selections. But maybe it's because we're, again, this is light heavyweight fights, right, Simon? And we're, they're practically heavyweights who cut weight, let's be honest. I mean, that's the same goes for middleweight. You could make that argument. In other words, these guys hit hard. And so when we're talking about these entertaining fights, there's a good chance these guys could have been changed as far as their career trajectories and, and that sample size could, could support those claims.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you know, you think about some of the great heavyweight boxers down the years and, and and the weights that they used to compete at. Like Muhammad Ali wasn't a hell of a lot more than 210, 215. You know, I mean, a lot of the guys on this list, almost all of them, when they were competing inside the octagon, would have been doing so at well over 210, 220 pounds, you know, by the time that they'd, they'd actually got up there and they'd rehydrated. They're big guys. They're basically small heavyweights who can cut, as you say. And they're, they're fighting at speed. Some of the bigger heavyweight guys, the action can be a little bit slow. But these light heavyweight guys, especially early, early on in fights, there's no messing around at all. They are explosive. They're quick. They've got that, that little turn of foot that perhaps some of the larger heavyweights don't have. And you put power and speed together, and it, it's a very dangerous combination. And uh, the light heavyweight division over the years hasn't always been given the uh the most shine sometimes it, it's sort of gone through cycles where it's been one of the glamour divisions and then it's kind of been in the doldrums a little bit but you look back at some of these fights and it really does it really does show you that we've got a collection of some of the most iconic fights in the sport here at 205 yeah and you know you say power and speed in that mixture
0: and i guess to to, to just before we get into the topic just to tie that into something I said previously as far as, and I always credit uh, Julian Marquez for saying this, middleweights are essentially heavyweights who cut weight. And we've seen, you know, even more in modern era, like looking at Antonio Carlos Jr., won the ultimate fighter at heavyweight, grappling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu champion heavyweight, um, you know, was like a 500 fighter at light heavyweight, ultimately ended up at middleweight. We see a lot of guys that way. And as time progresses, because I'm sure our list will, 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 will probably run the gamut fairly fairly wide as far as time goes. Um, and, and so there'll be some history in this episode too, folks, but, uh, you'll also see that some of these guys are weight. That guy wasn't always, uh, wasn't he, didn't he fight at middleweight or didn't this guy eventually go to heavyweight? Yes. There's a lot of that because basically what I'm saying here is it's a very shared divisions when you talk about light heavyweight and middleweight and heavyweight, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys like that. Vitor Belfort's a guy who competed at all three, for example.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, these, these guys are all, are all savages. And as you say, some of them. Have, uh, have come down from heavy or some of them might even be on their way up towards heavy. I can think of one notable name at least who uh, who figures on this. I'm sure he figures on both of our lists who uh, in the not too distant future may even find himself holding a heavyweight title one day. So, um, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of people on this list who probably competed in more than one weight division. Um, and the other thing to mention, just obviously, you know, you say we haven't, we haven't consulted on our lists just as a, a point of reference or two points of reference. The first one, when it came to looking at stuff outside of the UFC and Pride in particular, I've looked at Pride's middleweight division, which is their 205 division, right? So, mm-hmm. or, or 205 as it was at the time. So, I've, I've kept everything at the at the same weight. So, it, everything should make sense. So, the fights are, are their respective equivalents in terms of the actual poundage. So, for I know, like, you know, you look at one championship or, you know, some of the Asian promotions – their definition of weight classes is slightly different. Um, But we're talking poundage, at least on my list. Everything on my list, at least as far as I'm aware, someone will pull me up on it if I've got it wrong. But all of these fights should all be 205ers.
0: Absolutely. And as, as people know, that that's a great explanation, Simon. And as people know, the lunatics run the asylum here on this podcast, which means we're not oh, yeah. hard pressed on rules. In fact, I appreciate unique uh, little takes, hipster takes, as you might call it. In fact, I definitely cross those lines. And let's be honest, uh, we'll get into it. We'll get into it here on our list. But even within the UFC, right, it gets a little hazy. I mean, uh, lightweight, you know, lightweight was at 170 at one point, right? And when they finally made it 155, it wasn't called lightweight. It was actually initially called bantamweight before they made it lightweight. Well, it took them about four tries because they just, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, d- dissembled the division about three times before ever making it stick and so on and so forth. So weight classes have their own story. That'll touch on the list here. Let's, let's, uh, Let's just dive into these weeds, Simon. Would you like to go first with your number five, or would you like me to kick the party off? Uh, we're we're going to change. We'll probably end up changing uh, to doing a Chinese fire drill halfway through this anyways.
1: I'll kick it off, and I'll, I'll kick it off with the biggest rivalry, I think, in in light heavyweight MMA history, and that's John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, UFC 182. And the thing I love about this fight, um, this is kind of where everything started. This is where where the rivalry really did kick off, and the, the thing that I sort of going back in history and, and, and looking at the, the sort of the lineage of this fight, this fight was never supposed to happen, Dan. This was a substitute fight. This was supposed to be John Jones, Alexander Gustafson, two at UFC 178. Gustafson blew out his knee. They called up Cormier and then they had that infamous. I called it the brawl in the MGM Grand Hall. I called it where they had that infamous press conference and they basically posterized Dave Scholler. On the stage, um, that infamous that infamous moment where Dave, who's about the same height as me, about five foot eight, five foot nine, sort of stood between them with his arms outstretched, as if to say, "Yeah, I can stop these guys." No, he couldn't. He ended up falling back through the curtain. Shoes were thrown, punches were thrown, expletives were thrown, and it, it just set everything up. um But then Jones got injured, so the fight got pushed back. Um, and we had it at one eight two, and at that point, it wasn't a substitute fight anymore. It was the biggest fight probably the UFC could have booked at the time. It was absolutely massive. The anticipation was through the roof, and that night was the night that we saw just why John Jones is as good as he is. Because at, at that point, people were talking about him as being the pound for pound number one. You know, it was him and uh, him and DJ Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. There was a genuine debate going on at that point. I think that that is Jones really. The, the number one guy in the sport. And Cormier was pretty much on paper everything that that, that Jones uh, wasn't. You know, He was that collegiate athlete coming through, squeaky clean. Uh, everything about him was almost the antithesis of John Jones. They were almost polar opposites. But Cormier was undefeated as a heavyweight, ran through strike force, ended up in the UFC, went undefeated as a heavyweight, then moved down. And then you've got this rivalry that just exploded almost out of nowhere um, because Cormier came in bullish, confident and clearly rubbed Jones up the wrong way. And then it all went from there. But then when the fight started, Dan, and, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you can share your memories of this as well. Cormier had been through. I think he was unbeaten at that point, was running through everybody, making it look easy. I don't think he lost a round. He certainly hadn't been taken down. You got taken down in the first 45 seconds of the fight. Then imagine that you're in a Olymp- two time Olympic wrestler. You've never been taken down. You've been in there with some of the best heavyweights of your era and gone through them like a hot knife through butter. You've then moved down a weight where you're even bigger and stronger than your opposition. And 45 seconds into your world title fight, you get put on your backside. The mental, the mental, uh, shock of that happening must've been quite something for DC at that point um and then pretty much from that moment on i think he caught i think he caught a kick uh, jones caught a kick or he certainly grabbed a single leg swept the other leg took him down uh and there obviously were other takedowns after that but at that point i think that was the moment really where jones basically was marking his territory in the cage and saying i've got this everything you've got i've got i've got a trump card to beat it and in the end that's kind of how it played out it was a super competitive fight but for everything that DC did as good as it was Jones just had that little bit extra he was just that cut above uh, throughout the five rounds and i think all three all three judges gave it 49-46 for Jones um so maybe not the maybe not the closest fight on the list that i'm going to give right but it was the historical significance of the fact that it started the rivalry um it was the fact that Cormier as a as a unblemished athlete going in there and meeting his match and meeting it in the form of a guy who he absolutely detested by the end of it. Um, And then obviously everything that followed since then. And we know, we all know what happened with like UFC 200 and how all that fell apart. And then the rematch and the failed drug test and the no contest. And the fact that even now when John Jones goes through his personal problems that he's had just this past week, people are still asking Daniel Cormier, you know, almost ask or asking him without asking him to basically shit on him and and to go back and and uh dig it all up again and dc took the high road which is which says all you need to know about him as a, as yep. a, as a guy but yep. that rivalry for me defines the modern light heavyweight era in mixed martial arts and that was the fight that started it. the build-up was great the fight was great and it led on to even bigger things afterwards so that's my number five dan
0: you know, there's no there's no wrong answer when you're touching on this rivalry if you were to pick one fight or the other, really. Um, it, and I'm glad you have it because it, 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 it's not on my list. Not because it doesn't deserve to be. Uh, if we were talking about, because it was, it was a great setup uh, that you did, Simon, and also I like that you focused on the takedowns and what those meant. Because if we were talking about top five light heavyweight fights, uh, you were looking forward to or forget light heavyweight fights, Simon, if it was top five fights you were looking forward to, this would be on the list uh for me oh, personally yeah. um because I was a big strike force guy, and when everyone was already trying to figure out what was going on with Jones, I was kind of looking over to strike force you know um i i wasn't uh, disregarding the amazing run that John Jones was on, but I was also one of those people that were like I could see that you know the rampages of the world were being figured out, they were entering their elder years. A lot of these guys were natural middleweights, whether we we're talking about and or Belfort, or they weren't matchups that necessarily were meant to came to be. Um, and then, you know, there was also that frustrating period prior where they were feeding him uh, Matushchenko or even Vera, which, and I don't mean that as a disrespect to Vera, because I, I like Vera, and I, I may or may not touch on him more later, um, but... This, you know, I was looking over to Strikeforce. Now, this prediction didn't age well, Simon, but I initially thought King Mo was going to be the guy. Now, this is early on, by the way, okay? This is before he gets KO backfist, a spinning backfist from Emmanuel Newton, folks. This is way before that. I still didn't age well. I'm not saying, I'm not not arguing with that. But because of that not aging well, and also a guy named Daniel Cormier, who was initially a heavyweight, kind of part of the reason why we didn't expect to see this matchup, right, Simon? Uh, he starts. Yeah. He he comes down to 205, which was talked about. We didn't really think so because of his issues. He had weight cutting with wrestling, right? Which is what he was known from coming before MMA. Uh, all of a sudden, he's making 205. And like you said, he was just thrashing people. And in my mind, he took the torch from the guys like King Mo or other guys that we were throwing out there. Oh, this guy could beat Jones. Maybe this guy. Glover Teixeira was a guy that we thought could. And that's why that fight is so impressive to me. Still to this day, Jones yeah. versus Teixeira but I was really looking forward to this fight and it it was a competitive fight. It was a unanimous decision uh, justifiably so, but just because a yeah. decision's unanimous doesn't mean it wasn't competitive. Uh, I'm not saying it wasn't close, but competitive. And now I know I'm, you know, playing wordplay and I'm really taking the tweezers and splitting hairs here, but th- th- these are fair definitions and it was a competitive fight. But those takedowns meant so much, especially in the modern era where we we we're starting to get a better grasp with takedowns. You even hear the broadcast now, like the Annex of the World. These really uh, really smart guys are like, he got you know, they're calling the action fair, but they're also educating the audience at the same time. Where they're like, he scores the takedown, but he didn't get anything from it. You know, we're we're now yeah. thinking in these terms. Um, takedowns don't mean as much. However, this wasn't too far removed. The fight you're talking about at 182, Simon. And I can't think of fights where takedowns meant more. Like you said, it was you know you you kind of did it, uh, a vague analogy there, which I liked and I agree with, of the uh, you know the pissing contest or a dog marking his territory, and because that's what it was. That sounds. That sounds hard, uh, a hard description, right? But that's it's it's so appropriate. It's so appropriate. That's exactly what it was because people like myself were making the case for Cormier, were going, well, say what you will about John Jones at range. It's when it's wrestling time, baby. It's wrestling time. And it wasn't quite wrestling time. In fact, we see one of the best displays of clinch fighting in MMA period, modern era or otherwise. In that fight, we see Jones Shut down Cormier's clinch. He actually forces Cormier to get better in the clinch because of this fight.
1: Yeah, and we saw that in the rematch as well. You know, the rematch Cormier was doing a lot better in in those in those close quarters exchanges, and was doing very well until he got caught. Um, I thought he was winning the uh, winning the rematch, and then obviously he got clipped, and uh, obviously we know everything that happened after that. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I was I was very much of a similar mind to you. I was of the opinion that. Range is such an important determining factor in any fight. If you can control the range, then you can control the fight. Um, and if you're the person who was able to control the, I mean, Cormier was always going to have to walk through the fire of, of John Jones's strikes, but John Jones has never been a, a real knockout artist in terms of how he throws his shots. He tends to, he tends to look for cumulative damage. He doesn't look for one, one shot, haymaker finishes. So Cormier was was in a position where I think he probably felt pretty confident going in that he could walk through anything that, that Jones was throwing at him. I mean, he'd been in there competing at heavyweight against some pretty heavy-handed guys, and uh, he dealt with them all pretty handily. So yep. uh, against a guy with not much of a knockout record in terms of outright punching and, and or even uh, his kicks, uh, I think Cormier would have been pretty pretty confident he could close the distance, get across that bridge, get his hands on Jones, and... Being, you know, with all of his his, his vast experience in as, as as an amateur wrestler competing at the Olympic level, I'm sure he would have thought, okay, if I get there, he's in my wheelhouse now, and then it's it's Cormier time, and it didn't turn out that way. And then when it didn't turn out that way, um, I'm not saying he didn't have a plan B um, because he, he kept he kept fighting. He, he's a heavy-handed guy himself, right? But his 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 knockout punch, if you like, in quotation marks. You know, his his specialist skill uh, was basically nullified at source. He couldn't do anything with it. So he was almost fighting with one hand tied behind his back because the one thing that he's been able to impose on every other opponent in his career, which is his will and his wrestling, he didn't have anything for Jones. Jones just had all the answers. And that's why Jones won the fight as not comfortably, but as well as he did. Absolutely. Well said.
0: Let's, uh, let's tie this in because there was a seed planted earlier. And I, I, I look just now it actually ties into my number five. Now, again, Simon, kind of like we talked about this, this is, this is your top five. This is Simon Head's top five list. This is Dan Tom's top five list. And we'll get to the listeners top five list accordingly. Um, because if we tried to make a top five list, not only is it subjective, we would still argue. We would probably be arguing a lot more over the same fights or crossing over and they would be much more common. And I don't know if the listeners would, would get a lot from it. So admittedly, this is admittedly, uh, I, I will be doing probably a slightly different list for our outlet that me both me and Simon work for, the uh, MMA Junkie, when I truncate this into a fight vault. Because some people will have my heads for this and many others, uh, but this definitely kind of gives a eh, gives a, gives a hint as far as the Shogun Hua selection, because let's be honest, if you don't have Shogun Hua somewhere in this list for one of his fights, something is probably wrong with you. Now, th- that said, if you don't have Shogun Hua, don't feel bad, Simon. They're actually, there's probably defensible. There's a lot to choose from. However, if you do have Shogun Hua, you're probably going to be talking about certain fights that I'm not going to burn, because they may be on your list, Simon, And I wanted to use my number five, which as you know, listeners know, I'll I'll use my number five as kind of a hipster selection to talk about a Shogun fight that doesn't get talked about that often. And it is a war. It is a light heavyweight war. And it is Shogun Hua on UFC on Fox 4 when he fought Brandon Vera. This fight does not get talked about, Simon. Um, I mentioned Brandon Vera with John Jones, and it was supposed to be a matchup of prospects, but... The quiet thing from the matchmakers, as well as people who were following the sport, and again, this is no disrespect to Vand- Brandon Vera, you know, who notably set out he was going to be the first UFC champ, champ, right? Remember, he said he was going to, I'm going to get titles at heavyweight and light heavyweight, and you yeah. know, he 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 had his he had his moments against Tim Sylvia. Sil- they gave him his chances, his matchups at heavyweight, he dropped the ball or didn't go his way for one reason or another. You know, he got mounted by Fabrizio Verdoom. Um, And he always had that held over his head, and that was kind of unfair. It's Fabricio freaking Verdum, you know? Uh, I don't think he would have got out of it earlier, even though he was complaining it was an early stoppage. But you had all these hiccups, right? So even by the time Vera fights John Jones, it's like, okay, we get it. It's a matchup of prospects. I'm using air quotes in case you're not watching or subscribing on our YouTube channel. Um, But, you know, uh, Brandon, and of course, Brandon Vera, you're hoping he's going to give him a good fight. You're like, "I I was a... Jones a bigger Jones fan early than I was later Simon but I come off very critical of him because I just you know I saw the glimpses of what he showed against Stefan Bonner and I was just I hated the soft hand matchmaking you know that they 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 probably could have used for so many other fighters and not this guy who was so great and clearly above his peers um so I was I, I was excited I wanted Brandon Vera to kind of give him something he didn't uh, we, we fast forward. He drops the ball a couple more times. I lose to John Jones. He, I, I'm at you know UFC 125 when he just gets his nose smashed by Tiago Silva. It shows up as a no contest, but he got walloped in that fight, folks. You know, uh, you know, uh, he beats Elliot Marshall. Uh, has a bunch of canceled bouts. Now he meets Shogun Hua for my number five selection here at UFC on Fox, and I do the setup not to mischaracterize or take a shot at Brandon Vera. But to put into context, okay, because if you go back and watch this fight, Simon or the listeners, you even hear Joe Rogan going, you know, uh, like he's kind of like doing subtle jabs and not because Joe Rogan's a dick or he's trying to take shots at Brandon Vera. I think he likes Brandon Vera. Joe Rogan's a great commentator, but you hear him almost kind of taking shots to where like, Brandon Vera almost gets knocked out in the first round. It almost looks like he's out on his feet. You know, Shogun's just piling it on. Brandon Vera's backs against the head, heads against the fence. He he bends over at a certain point. You're like, oh, it's, it's almost done. And then Brandon Vera just decides somewhere. He's like, you know what? No. I know I've been disappointing for like the the, the majority of the run of my decade or my, my UFC career, it feels like. And, and people have given up on me. And by the way, he would never get a UFC win before. Uh, uh, He wouldn't get a UFC win that night or after, and he would never fight in the UFC again after one more loss. Okay, folks, but there's a moment where Brandon Vera decides to bite down and swing back, and he makes this a fight. And it a gives us a great fight that I I feel I can even sneak on this list, but b back to the Rogan quote. Rogan's going. Vera's fighting back, like he's almost making comments like he's surprised, like, wow, he's not quitting, you can't say he's quitting, it's like, well, Joe, no one was saying he's quitting, but Joe is essentially acknowledging the hardcore audience and the the previous dialogue, right, not the necessarily casual broadcast dialogue, so it may come off that Joe is being harsh on Vera, but you have to put into context all the hype vera brought okay i mean this was supposed to be he was vera was talking about champ champ before this was a thing all right folks so like you really have to put into context that vera was a guy that captured the imagination i mean he was a greco-roman wrestler who qualified really high uh here on the u.s side of things um you know he was working his brazilian jiu-jitsu i want to say with lloyd Irvin through the alliance conne- uh, c- uh, connection uh he was doing kickboxing with rob cayman um, you know, and and you're you're seeing all the skills that he would show in flashes throughout his career. Shogun made him show all the skills: the counter grappling, the offensive grappling that people criticize. Uh, Vera, And Vera was a much better grappler, defensively and offensively, than he ever got credit for. And we see his slick southpaw, uh, you know, his slick south uh, uh, southpaw striking. He's hitting elbows that we would see later. Anthony Smith. He was actually showing a lot of the seeds from whether it was Gustafson. Anthony Smith, tall guys with rangy striking, John Jones, uh, all the foils that would later show up in Shogun's game. Brandon Vera showed all those foils. He did not come away with the win. In fact, he tried so hard for the win that he almost, you know, had the tide turned by the time round three came around, even though he almost got knocked out in round one. But by the time round four comes around, they're both pretty tired, and Shogun digs deep and connects connects with them with a, a brutal shot. Brandon Vera still keeps trying to fight to where he doesn't get just knocked out, Simon, but he gets knocked out bad. Simon, I'm sure, especially cage side, as you've covered many fights, there are certain knockouts that stand out more than others, right? Whether it's a guy going out cold, he does the foot twitch. One of the worst ones, in my opinion, I think James Tahunas suffered it for one of his last knockouts. But when they go unconscious and they come out of conscious and they're going uh, and making noises, it's the worst. It's so uncomfortable. And Brandon Vera is doing just that. It's one of the most uncomfortable knockouts you see. and But at the same time, even though Van de Vera would never get a UFC, he was already in a, street, a down streak, he would never get a UFC win again. You cannot freaking accuse that guy of not trying or quitting. Like, And that is a fight that for both guys' sake just does not get talked about enough. There's plenty of Shogun fights that deserve to be on here. I'm not saying they don't, folks. I just wanted to use this opportunity to talk about that one.
1: Yeah, and you know Brandon's gone on and done pretty well for himself since since then he's gone uh, yes. he's gone over to uh he's gone over to asia where he's he's one of the he's one of the big stars in one championship he's he's yeah. a he's a reigning he's a reigning heavyweight champion he is i think he he's four now. and one he's four and one undefeated at heavyweight um but he's four and one and uh yeah i mean he's he's all of his wins have been first round finishes at heavyweight so um, you know, he's still, he's still got plenty of life in him yet. Even though I think, yes, he, I think yeah. he's part, I think he's in his forties now. I think he might be in his forties. Is he 40? Uh, 42. There you go. Just quickly, a quick check on his age 42. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's moved over and he's done, you know, he's, he's, he's a bit of a legend over there in the Philippines. They love him. Um, and, uh, the crowds absolutely adore him when he's, when he's fighting over there, they always try oh, and yeah. put him on a Filipino card whenever they can um so he's done he's done pretty well for himself over there i think i think for him it i think it was a classic case of getting too much of a push too early yeah. i think he got that yeah. oh, I, yeah. I think he he picked up that win over frank mir but frank mir wasn't at his best at the time yep i think he was still fighting his way back at that point that was back in 2006 um but then he lost to tim Silver, He lost to fabrizio verdoom uh then he later lost to keith jardine and the wins that he picked up in the main were against against what you would call uh, prospect opposition rather than contender opposition. So, yes, yes. Uh, probably the you know the biggest name that he beat was probably Christoph Szynski, who at the time I think was considered potentially a rising contender, but it never quite happened for him. Um, but yeah, and he beat Elliot Marshall, as you mentioned. Yep. But every time he went in there with a world-class opponent in the UFC, he got beat. Um, and that that's not a, a, a downer on him. Yeah. It might just be that his evolution as a mixed martial artist might have, you know, he might have peaked later in his career. Um, and, uh, you know, he's been in there and I, he certainly looks much more comfortable fighting at heavy than he, than, than he ever looked fighting at light heavy. Um, yeah. He's, very, totally. he's, he's quite thin and rangy, but at heavyweight, I mean, if you see him at heavyweight, he's a solid, solid unit at heavyweight. He's, he's properly filled out. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, his other problem of course is, his, his prime, if you like, as a UFC light heavyweight was pretty much in that in that period where the old guard, if you like, your Shogun, was and people like that yeah. were still pretty much at their prime. And then there were this new crop of rising contenders led, of course, by John Jones, who was beginning to hit form as well. And it was that sort of sweet spot where you had the new guard and the old guard. And, uh, you know, Brandon couldn't quite break through during that time where arguably the talent pool at that point has never been any richer than it was at that moment, sort of in the early 2010s, maybe. Right. Um, Even
0: guys like Keith Jardine, like who you can't really look good against, right? You know, Yeah. Uh, who he's supposed to beat was a name, but you can't really look good against that guy. And totally, yeah. I don't mean to discredit anything that he's doing at one now, which is awesome. I think I just mean to say that I don't know if he really got a fair shake, which... Go to your point, the, uh, the the you know the uh, the fast push. I don't know if he really got a, a fair shake or the best representation as far as the U.S. audience or the UFC audience uh, by the time that he left.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's entirely possible. I think the the thing with the UFC and and back then I think they were doing like a car, one or two cards a month back then. Right. When, you know, when he was on the way up, um, people were getting getting big wins, and the natural thing to do was to rebook them as fast as possible. Um, and get them back in there and um, you know I think although I I think with with someone like Vera um, he just he wasn't able to evolve himself into that upper echelon he went in there with enough of them um, but it just didn't didn't quite work out for him and as I say I mean he started out at heavy dropped to light heavy um, I think as you say his plan was win the heavyweight title first wasn't it and then drop to light heavy and, and, and do it there and unfortunately it just didn't work out for him but Shogun, who at the time was an absolute killer, and he might he might feature on my list a bit later on.
0: All right, good, good. I'm glad I didn't burn any others. Let's let's continue to move on the list. Who do you
1: have for your number four, sir? Right, let me take you back to 2004. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna roll the clock back a little bit. All right. Saitama Saitama Super Arena in Japan. Um, huge, huge crowd in attendance. Pride Critical Countdown 2004. Now this event featured the quarterfinals. Of the 2004 Heavyweight Grand Prix. That was, that was the, real, the real selling point of Critical Countdown. It was all about the Heavyweight Grand Prix. And Critical Countdown was the quarterfinal stage. So you had like Sergei Karatonov, Semi Schilt, Big Nog, Heath Herring, Kevin Randleman, and some Russian dude called Fedor Emelianenko. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, apparently, he was quite good. Um, so we had those guys on all, all in the quarterfinals of prior Critical Countdown. But also on that card was a light heavyweight belt that possibly, arguably, produced the most famous light heavyweight knockout in MMA history. I think he's got to be up there. Quinton Rampage Jackson knocking out Ricardo Arona with the power bomb felt around the world. Um before we talk about the finish load, Dan, I think it's absolutely vital we make clear just what a savage Ricardo Arona was, right? So heading into that because to a lot of people who maybe weren't watching or covering the sport at a time, or maybe haven't had the chance to delve that far back into the archives. Maybe only know Ricardo Arona as the guy who got slammed into unconsciousness that does him a huge disservice. He's a three time Abu Dhabi champ, including in the absolute division. If you win the absolute division, then you know, you are, you are the man heading into the fight with Rampage. He was eight and one in mixed martial arts. His only loss at that point was against Fedor who he took the distance. So we're talking about a legit talent. By that time, he'd beaten Jeremy Horn twice. He had a win over openweight king of Pancrase, Guy Mezger. He had a win over Dan Henderson, and we know what he went on to do in his career, pride Strikeforce uh, champion. And he had a win, uh, I think his most recent win before the, uh, the Rampage fight was a win over Ninja Hua, yep. who won and yep. won a championship for Elite XC, uh, who weren't around for too long. But hey, it was a belt. So uh, these are all championship level opponents and he was putting you know he, he he was defeating them legit a legit fighter superb credentials from 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 a grappling standpoint and uh he, he went on after that defeat and did very well for himself as well you know beat dean lister sakuraba Vandalay silver he reached a final of the pride middleweight tournament which is like heavyweight in our money right so this is not a guy who was who was a scrub or someone who, when he lost his career, was over. He was good before. He was very good after. But against Rampage Jackson, this is at the time Rampage Jackson was one of the scariest dudes on the planet. Um, and but in that fight, Ricardo Arona was looking to use his use his uh, his grappling advantage. It was it was an obvious striker versus grappler matchup. And uh, the final exchange was the one that has been replayed mil- tens of millions of times. I would imagine um over the course of the you know the last the last decade or so um he's got his back on the mat uh rampage is looking to throw some ground and pound and uh arona grabs the arm locks up the triangle or he's in the process of locking up the triangle and uh i think he sees he sees rampage has left his arm in so he, he's gone for the arm and he's looking to lock up the triangle armbar. um which is which would have been checkmate. I don't think Rampage would have would have got out of it. But Rampage made a split-second decision that helped him win the fight. Soon as he saw that Arona was going for his arm, he brought his other arm in and clasped his hands together. And that was the move that allowed him, just with his sheer athleticism and brute strength, to then lift him up above his head and then slam him down onto the mat. Now, you watch the replay. I'm not 100% sure whether it was a, the back of Arona's head hitting the mat that knocked him out or the fact that Rampage's forehead went straight into the yes. brow yep. of a literally like a 10th of a second afterwards. So it was, it was almost a double impact. Um, whichever one it was knocked him out, it knocked him out clean. And uh, it's one of the most, most devastating finishes. And we've seen it before when people, when people get locked up in a, in an arm bar or a triangle arm bar like that. And the crowd, quite often you see you see people try and almost replicate this move try and lift them up and slam their way out of it and no one's ever been able to reproduce that rampage finish to quite that level and for that reason and the fact that that was peak rampage that was when rampage was his absolute peak he had the uh he had the apollo creed uh shorts on at the time the uh, the yes yeah yeah creed shorts and uh he was he was an absolute megastar in japan at the time and uh, that was the knockout that really took him up to the next level. And, of course, he had those legendary fights with, with Vandalay Silva. But, um, for me, that was the peak of uh, Rampage Jackson in Japan. Totally. And, uh, it's an iconic piece of footage. And we talk about how how we compile these lists, Dan. And, as you said, quite rightly, if we'd have just listed the best, what we consider to be the best five fights, our list probably would have been pretty similar. Right. So, i've gone my my sort of criteria has kind of moved back and forth as i've done this list so we've got historical stuff we've got stuff that resonated with me personally and uh stuff that i just think absolutely has to be in there just from a sheer action and uh content standpoint so but for this this for me was one of the most devastating finishes i've ever seen at light heavyweight uh it's iconic great. and uh, for that reason that's my number four great pick great pick uh you know, uh there's so much you could have picked with, with, with Rampage,
0: but I like that you picked this one because, you know, Arona doesn't get talked about enough. Him and guys like Marilla Bustamanch around that time period, to, to those, you see them opposite of your fan favorites, like the Vanderleys or the Rampages. But if you look at their body at work, like, people often refer to Vinny Magalese, you know, one still one of the best uh, submission grapplers in MMA, right? They refer to him as, like, as far as, like, he's got the body of, like, a, a Greek god, and I don't you know, mean that, like erotically or anything but like he as far as fighting right he's got this great build of muscle and flexibility and if you're a grappler or a jiu-jitsu guy and you've got that insane balance of musculature and flexibility and athleticism boy you can do some damage and Arona was like Vinny except uh, a much bigger, you used the word unit, I believe, and it was correct. I mean, it was also a different, uh, it was a different testing time period. Uh, it was a different era of the sport. But yeah, he had that balance, right? And again, he wasn't just a jiu-jitsu guy. This was an Abu Dhabi guy, folks. So that means he could do it in and out of the gi. Um, so having a guy that level, that kind of a force, I mean, this was a legitimate threat. Um, he was probably hoping it would have gone more like uh, Melvin Manhoff versus, uh, what's that Korean gentleman's name? who um, oh. or whatever he, when he lost by armbar where it's just like you have the, Min- the super athletic oh, Kim was it yes Kim?
1: Yeah, yeah
0: yeah uh and he's, he's got the super athletic guy bombing on you and you hopefully you catch the submission um that's what happens when it goes right what happens when it goes wrong Is is, is, that. is that yeah <laughs> so that's a great great selection for many reasons uh, simon awesome awesome there uh, my number four is another one kind of like you capped off the criteria changes, like this one, if we're judging from a pure fight standpoint for what happens in the fight, how much action we see, etc., etc., this is probably one of the more lower ones on the list. So It is technically lower on the list, but more excusable ones to maybe get off the list. And I thought about it, but both from a personal perspective, uh, for when I was watching this fight where I was, to... More for the sport and what it represents for the sport and martial arts. I think it's a very important fight still. So it, it, Rashad Evans versus Leoda Machida at UFC 98 uh, or 97. I, um, I apologize. It's, I'm having a dyslexic moment. Uh, makes my list for a reason, okay? This was uh, I, I – I don't know if you remember watching this one live or not. I watched it live in Vegas, Simon, but not from uh, the arena. I believe it happened at MGM, okay? Right. I watched it at one of the Fertitta properties, uh, the Fertitta's own station casinos, as you guys hear. There's about four or so of them, maybe more, maybe less now. I don't know. We'll see where it ends up. But this was at uh, the Green Valley Station, probably, their newest, probably still to this day the newest one. And they had kind of like a fake like octagon area with like a cage, and they would just set up a big screen, and it was a viewing area where they sell you overpriced drinks, and they charge you <laughs> a price at the door to watch the fight, essentially. Okay, folks? Yeah. This is kind of, uh, you know, this is kind of early internet ripping things. I wasn't a fan of ripping things, by the way. Still not. I'm just saying. You're wondering why didn't you just watch it from home, Dan? Well, this was uh, this was one of the, the the few fights I went to with my stepdad, uh, and who became a fan of the sport. And this was uh something that you know uh, he he knew guys like Matt Hughes and Randy Couture, but didn't know much beyond that, right? So he he's kind of like the ca- casual. Um, I'm a hardcore at this point. We go in and it's just like your American audience, right? Like, you know, when they're introducing the cheetah, like everyone in the audience is booing and where I'm watching. Um, the great part is, as I'm telling you guys my personal story, when you go back to watch this yourself on Fight Pass or when I would go back to watch it later, the audience reaction and the audience turn, the not heel turn is the proper thing, but they at a certain point the audience turns who they're rooting for. But it happened in my audience as well as when you go back and watch the broadcast, the MGM Grand audience. And that's what kind of makes this fight special because you have a sitting American champion in America... The more reliable face. I mean, Rashad Evans is on a run, folks. Don't judge Rashad Evans off recent history when you're listening to this. Like, Rashad Evans was coming off. His last two fights was a a, a knockout at UFC 88 of Chuck Liddell, an iconic knockout that will stand the test of time. And then he knocks out a, a, another a, a legend in his own right, an ultimate fighter winner coached by him. You know, he knocks out the master and the student. Uh, Forrest Griffin, right? You know, the Ultimate Fighter 1 winner. Um, and he knocks him out for the title because, of course, Forrest just beat Rampage Jackson in, a- in another big fight. Um, so it- Rashad Evans is coming into this thing higher than ever. You got Machida, who's undefeated. Like, the last person to even land a power punch on him was BJ Penn. Like, up until Shogun Hua, who beat. Spoiler alert, folks! uh, Who beat uh, Lyoto Machida? BJ Penn was actually came the closest to be uh, a lightweight. It was the guy that came the closest to beating Lyoto Machida, which only made him his aura, his style, a further perplexing product to sell, to fight, to 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 whatever, to get behind as a fan. We didn't quite know what to make, even fans of him, right? But when Lyoto Machida went and he upset. Rashad Evans. It's essentially a couple counters. It's not the most action-filled fight until the finish happens, which is a pretty awesome and worth going back to watch. And sure, the welcome to the Machida era that did not age well, sure. <laughs> but what it represented was true, you know. Rogan joked about it. He goes, "You know, if, if this Machida guy pulls it off, karate school sales are going back up because what was going on then, which still going on now, it still goes on uh, within our sport at the highest levels, people talking about it, people talk about traditional martial arts with almost a disdain. Um, and I get it, believe me, I'm, I'm I'm someone who came from traditional martial arts, so even though part of me w- will defend it here, I am in no way n- uh, not going to, um, uh, what do you call, uh, state the facts. Uh, I- I'm well aware of the facts, hence why I converted and got into Muay Thai, Boxing, uh, and then from there I got into jujitsu and grappling. I, I I abandoned. I left. I left all the black belts I learned from other arts, and I said, no, I'm not gonna even fight for my southpaw stance or do anything that I'm normally doing. I'm gonna get my ass kicked, but I'm gonna learn how to box. Um, so believe me, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, I'm not wrongly defending, but at the same time, I will say that traditional martial arts does get a lot of disrespect, and even till this day. And seeing a guy like Machida kind of come in and just do what he did. And sure, it was kind of figured out, oh, he's waiting to counter. Oh, don't rush in on him. Or attack the legs. How did Muay Thai guys beat karate? And people started looking at other sources. They brought them in MMA. And now we're seeing, you know, Douglas Lima, dethrone Michael Page. And, you know, Shogun Hua kind of helped remind us what the blueprint is to beat these guys. But up until then, it was like some mystery, right? And yeah. it was just a special snapshot in time. I know this... Probably not on anybody's list. I'm ranting too long on this fight already. But um, it was just so cool to see the American audience both in the broadcast and in the room I was Simon. To go from booing the stupid karate guy, look at him. What a you know what a wimp or uh, other words that I, that are no longer okay for us to use that maybe me and Simon used as a kid growing up. But they were they were they may have been shouting those words at Machida, but by the end they were they were cheering for him, goddammit, and that was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what it did was it was almost like a throwback because You think of how the UFC started. It started out UFC 1, and it was a guy in a gi turning up and everyone looking at him going, well, this this guy's toast. He's going to get absolutely murdered by these guys. And uh, he goes in there, he beats three guys in one night and opens the eyes of the world to Brazilian jiu-jitsu or Gracie jiu-jitsu, as uh, as I'm sure they would tell us. Um, So it was almost that, but sort of 15 years on, you know, uh, because what, what the Oto Machida did, he was one of the very few people fighting the way he did. I mean, for, for a lot of people watching him fight, the, the overriding view was this guy's taking a lot of chances. His hands are low, he's bouncing in. And when he does, when he does attack, um, he, he tends to sort of throw his weight forward and his head's sort of straight up. He's wide open for a counter. And, um, but yet, he had this fighting style and it was it's almost like witchcraft, you know, and you've got these other guys who they've been training wrestling their whole life and they've added, they've added sort of boxing to their wrestling. Cause that's, we sort of went from that era of wrestle boxers, and yep. then you've got, you got, and I guess you could argue Rashad came from that era. I mean, he, yeah. he, he was a very strong wrestler, but he had excellent hands. I mean, you mentioned his knockout of, um, of, of that very nearly made my list because that is probably my favorite one punch knockout of all time. Just the sheer speed of it and the speed the technique and the fact that they threw at the same time and Rashad got there miles ahead of Chuck. Um, So I had a lot of time for Rashad. I know a lot of people thought he was a bit cocky when he first started out, when he came through tough. I know he, he rubbed a few people up the wrong way. He was a little bit sure of himself, but you know we've seen since then and I've had the chance to interview him a few times he's he's, he's a top man really nice guy very giving of other of other uh, athletes as well um check out his hall of fame uh, induction last year yeah um yeah. he was on the podium when the earthquake hit if you remember that that's right yeah we had, the that's earthquake right. Yep. In, we had the earthquake in las vegas and he was in the middle of his speech so um but yeah but for him to get beat the way he did and it, it he wasn't just beaten he wasn't just knocked out it, he was just dismantled. He was, he was befuddled and then dismantled by Machida the way he did it. And, uh, to do it with, as you say, a traditional martial art, it just gives credence to what, what his karate schools are still teaching. And it, it's everything about martial arts is about protecting yourself, um, and, and learning techniques to protect yourself. And there is, no, and I remember when I started Japanese jujitsu, that's what I used to do as a kid. And I remember the first, they I think day one, they t- you know obviously they teach you how to fall. The other thing they taught you was the best defense is not being in the way. If you can not be there, then that's your best defense. If you can get the hell out of dodge, leg it, keep out of trouble, then that's fine. If you're in a cage in a fistfight, that's a bit tricky. So you need to know your footwork. You need to be able to control range. And uh, to be able to do that with a world-class, world champion fighter coming towards you Um you know that's more than just uh, drilling a few catters in the gym. So, um, you know that was a that was a big win for karate, a huge win for Lyoto Machida, and uh, you know for the career he's had to be able to go down in history. Having said, I was a UFC world champion. I think, uh, and also he did it all with absolute class as well you know no one's got a bad word to say about lioto and uh and 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 rightly so i mean the only the only question mark really against him is the whole drinking his urine thing which is still (laughs) I, i still haven't quite got my head around that but you know you yeah, what keeps you healthy, Leoto. But you know, I, the gear I'll take the urine in a glass. I'll I'll, I'll leave that one to you. But, yeah, uh, that that amazing was more competitor, and you know, he deserved his win. It was a great win.
0: Yeah, that was more his father. Uh, his father unfortunately passed on that tradition to him, and uh, boy, those uh th- those things are gonna last. But no, yes, absolutely. This is no, not urine, serious. by the way. Just for those yeah. of who are
1: watching the video, this is this is very weak orange orange cordial. Just wanna, just for reference. Oh, that's great. That's great.
0: <laughs> I proposed. <laughs> no, it was classic. And I like I like the uh, analogy there as far as, you know, there was there was a little bit of that bringing it back to to UFC C 1 per se. Um Number number 3 here. Number 3 on the list. We're in the middle now. Uh I believe it's your turn, Simon.
1: Do you got your number 3 queued up? I got my number 3 and it's it's a fight that I think most people listening to this would expect one or both of us to have on the list. Okay. But arguably, controversially, very few people would think that it would come in at number three. Um, I've got John Jones versus Alex Gustafsson at UFC 165 as my number three. It's going into the Hall of Fame. It was announced this year. It's going into the UFC Hall of Fame. It is quite rightly held up as one of the greatest title fights in UFC history. Certainly, uh, the greatest heavyweight title fight that I can ever remember. We've had some good ones, but that one from a technical standpoint and everything about it, I think that is the standard by which all other, certainly light heavyweight title fights are judged. Maybe all title fights in the UFC. Um, it was, it was historic. It was an outstanding matchup. And uh, that's my number three. I mean, there are a lot of people who, and and people are still arguing to this day that Alex Gustafson won that fight. Um, I scored the fight for John Jones. Um, I thought John Jones won the fight. Um, and having watched it back on more than one occasion, um, I've, I haven't seen anything to change my mind on that. But what we did see was Jones getting pushed. And uh, we mentioned earlier Daniel Cormier doing very well against John Jones in the rematch before getting head kicked. Um, but over the full, the full course, over the full five-round distance, nobody has given John Jones more trouble than Alex Gustafsson. Um, everything that Jones did well. Gustafsson did well. And I think that came as a bit of a surprise. Gustafsson came in, came into the UFC predominantly known as a, as a striker, um, mm-hmm. came in with a boxing slash kickboxing background. Um, not really heralded for his grappling credentials or his wrestling. Um, but he clearly had worked incredibly hard. No doubt with a lot of help from, uh, Ilir Latifi who, uh, was in his team throughout all of this, uh, run into the ufc who is a very strong wrestler um and uh i think it came as a bit of a shock that alex was able, especially after what we saw jones do with daniel cormier and a two-time olympic wrestler for someone like gustafson who doesn't have those wrestling credentials to go in there and hang well not just hang with jones he was taking jones down and that was you know we talked about uh the impact and you know like the sort of the wow moment of jones taking dc down we had that again, but in reverse with Gustafson taking Jones to the mat. Yep. That was that was a at that point it was like okay we've got ourselves a proper fight here because the one area where we thought well Jones has always got this to lean back on if he's getting lit up in the striking or it's not going his well it's not going his way in the stand up we know Jones can get the fight to the mat and probably be quite dominant but then Gus starts taking Jones down and it's like okay all bets are off this is this is up for grabs at this point. And um, few people saw it coming. Um, And uh, what you tend to find is when, you know, talking about people who thought that Gustafsson won, and there are still people now who who will still argue that. What you tend to find is when you've got a dominant champion, especially when it's a a champion that perhaps hasn't become universally popular, and Jones certainly hasn't been universally popular, he's very polarizing. What you find is when you've got a, a, a champion like that, and they've been in post for a while, a lot of people are tuning in to watch him lose Mm -hmm. in the hope that the challenger is that next challenger is the guy who's finally going to knock him off his perch and defeat him. So what you tend to find is people are automatically carrying bias into the fight and they're watching the fight through the eyes of how well is Alex Gustafson doing here? And then you've got the commentary from, from, from the guys in, in, in the booth and, quite rightly highlighting the fact that Gus is is doing the business and having success where few people thought he was. And I think that just then bumps up everything that Gus is doing by an extra few percent. And then what happens is you get to the end of the fight. All these people are watching it kind of through the eyes of a challenger. Think, well, Gus has done enough to win this fight. Um, But of course, judges don't look at fights like that. It's red red corner versus blue corner and it's completely dispassionate and it's what's this person doing versus what's this person doing effectiveness of this versus effectiveness of that. And it's, it's, it's like for like comparing and, uh, watching the fight back. If you can do that without, in fact, it's probably easy to do that. Now, you know, the result has happened, you right? Just go right. Back, yeah. Watch it and say, okay, how would we score this now? And, and and you look at it. obviously the scoring criteria has tweaked slightly since then, but, but right. I think look at, looking at the fight and I, I haven't watched that fight back and thought that, that, gus won. what i have done is watch that fight back i thought he came very very close and i think in the end it was the final round i i I remember scoring it at the time 48 47 for jones um and i think two of the judges that night also scored it 48 47 for jones the third gave it 49 46 um but for me it was the final round it was it was very close going into the final round and jones jones won that final round uh at least in my eyes and that, for me, was what won him the fight. Um, and, you know, Gus pushed him harder than anybody we've seen before or since over the full five-round distance. Uh, as we say, DC did well before he got KO'd, but there was a no contest. But I think this, this one fight here is the one that cracked open the door just a little bit to say that this seemingly indestructible pound-for-pound pound star, he can be beaten. We've seen how close Alex Gustafson got um it just needs someone to go in and basically do that plus five percent then you've got a new champion and i think that's that's why this fight aside from the fact it was just a great fight that's why this fight goes on the list for me
0: this fight was the predator moment right right simon if it bleeds we can kill it when they find the blood on the on the branch that was the yeah. gustus fight we're we're holding we're holding the leaf up we're showing our friend look look what can be done but like yeah. you beautifully described, that bias, that challenger bias, that dominant champion bias, however you want to call it, there is a bias there. That's probably why I lean toward Gustafson Live. I've scored it for Jones 40, uh, 48, 47 since. Um, yeah. All the rewatches, right? Um, however, it's it's ironic because first, let me just touch off. I don't hate it on being number three. I wrote honorable mention slash two because it's probably going to fall number two or three when I do the truncated version on fight vault. I feel like people would have my head if I didn't have it on there. And I feel like it it does deserve to be on there. um, For me personally, because again, in hindsight, it's much easier to score. That being said, it probably impacts us a lot less than when we're in the moment and we're excited. Could John Jones actually lose? Oh my God. There is a lot of that. And I think um, some distractors will say, and I'll, I'll give them their say later. There's some notes here for the listener. Uh, for the listener list, uh, but but just you know, for people that might say, ah, this fight's um, overrated, they may they may point to that example uh, as per their as per their argument that we're just we're we're blowing this fight up because uh, it was the greatest fighter and this was the time where he almost lost. This was the first time where he almost lost, right? Um, et cetera, et cetera. However, I would say that, like for example, and I love both these fighters for different reasons. Tim Elliott versus Demetrius Johnson. I believe that's a great example. Uh, For what you're talking about, because we think of that fight as like Tim Elliott gave Demetrius Johnson a run for his money, and if you look at it, whether it's what people like the professionals or people like myself think the odds should be, uh, um, or whether it was Tim Elliott's odd history, it didn't match up after that Demetrius Johnson fight. Tim Elliott was not just the favorite and maybe fights he maybe shouldn't have been favorited in, and that's no disrespect to him, but you get you get that bump after you fight the champion and you don't get finished, right? Even if you lose, like, yeah. remember Dan Hardy? After he was riding high because he didn't get submitted by George St. Pierre, but then he gets knocked out by a one-punch knockout against a guy who really doesn't one-punch knockout people in Carlos Condit. Now, no disrespect to either of those guys, obviously, but I'm just saying there there is a little bit of this this bias this kind of push you get. And if you go back and watch the Tim Elliott versus Demetrius Johnson fight, it's really only one front headlock catch in the first round and none of the other rounds are close. But yeah. to your point, Simon, we build it up in our heads because Tim Elliott has these crazy crazy moment in the first round and we're like, whoa, whoa, we completely underestimated this guy just like we all did Gus, right? And he's, he's proving us wrong already in the first round, back to your point about the takedown and why that was so big. And we're like, hmm. whoa, 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 right? That being said, I believe it was a much closer fight, and by quality, a much better fight, yeah. and by importance, because there's all these different metrics we can judge these fights or justify these fights on their list. All those metrics, I think John Jones versus Gustafson um, is much better than that fight, is all I would say, I guess, to that argument. However, um, it's not like a number one for me either, Simon. It would probably be a number two or three uh, yeah. f- for that same reason. And just lastly, how I scored it for whatever it's worth... Uh, I think it came down to the fifth round as well, Um, and I do score it for John Jones. I just think it's ironic because I think that there is an argument for Gustafsson in the fifth because what John Jones does so well and that Jackson camp really made, um, they really started the trend, Um, not just the takedown with the last 10 seconds, which thankfully we're seeing judges smarten up, right? We're realizing he doesn't win the round. But the Jackson camp was one of the first ones to do that, but they didn't just do it through takedowns. They would do it through punches and kicks and they, want, they would do it, especially Jones, someone as dynamic as Jones would do it by spamming moves. So whether they landed or not, he would always spam spin kicks and spin elbows and he would do some kind of weird stalking even if he was countering and being conservative the whole round because, again, they're, they're, they're smart over there that Jackson Wink, especially in that era, they were consistent round winners. They had the judge's yeah. perspective in mind. Now, luckily it pays off for him in round four because he rocks him with the spinning elbow. He legitimately rocks yeah. Gustafson, we're not arguing. Arguing yeah. with it, I don't hate judges for giving him that round. On rewatch, I've given John Jones that round either. It's just ironic because literally four minutes to four minutes and 15 seconds of the round, not only is Gustafson clearly winning the round, again, clearly winning four minutes to four minutes and 15 seconds of a five minute round, but he is busting up John Jones, who is already busted up by this point of the fight round four He busts up John Jones arguably more Puts more numbers on him maybe even too Than any other round And that's yeah. ironic that that is the turning point Which is should be too late If we're judging by round by round by round four And he yeah. won the majority of that round When you start doing the that kind of crude math You're like how the F did Gustafson lose the fight But he loses round three He gets round four stolen from him And you know um, Not by a wide margin But John Jones does enough to outwork him in round 5, the ironic part, though, about round 5 is, again, I score it for Jones, no issue, but if you look at it, he's not even landing any of, um, any, of, uh, any of the strikes that he's spamming at the end of round 5. And even at the end of round 4, he legitimately hurts Gustafson, but there's like 20 seconds left in the round, and he literally hits him with 1.5 to 2.5 strikes. None of the other follow-up strikes land. So even though I scored it for Jones every time, I don't... I don't. I'm not surprised when I still hear people hanging on to the Gustafson argument, but they got to take into account what you said because I completely agree, Simon. Where yeah. jo- Jones is so built up that 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 this really just took us off by surprise and and biased our view for better and worse.
1: Yeah, and I think the thing with John Jones, I mean, one of the things that maybe he doesn't he doesn't always get a huge amount of credit for, largely because it's not necessarily something that the fight game likes to, likes to hold up as a, as a virtue is he's probably the best game manager in, in MMA. Like he knows his, he knows his status in any, at any point in any round, in any fight, he knows when he's behind, he knows when he needs to turn it up. He knows when he needs to keep his distance. He's just got his fight. IQ is, is up there with anybody who's ever been in the cage. And I think, yeah technically he is an outstanding fighter, but marry that with a with the ability to think on the fly and to be aware of his own his own standpoint within the fight he isn't self contained in this little bubble and he's just throwing limbs at the opposition. He knows where he is in regards to the fight. you know there's this big argument right now about open scoring right in m m a he's scoring this fight as he's going he's probably scoring it by strike by strike. you know what I mean yeah. I think he's He's almost at that sort of granular level yep. as he goes through rounds, and I think he knows when he's he lands. Okay, that's a scoring shot, and he, he'll he'll circle away, or you know, he. I think he he's he's almost at that level where he's operating on a, on a different mental mental plane to a lot of his opposition, and I think his ability to control the narrative of a fight. That's why, and this is, you know, saying he's a good game manager. Not every John Jones fight is that entertaining to watch, right? You watch some of his past fights where he's won them with ease, but you always quite often you come away thinking I wanted more. I wanted more out of that. I wanted to see more from Jones, but he does what he needs to do to win fights. I mean, I remember the Ovin St. Prue fight. I was there for that. Um, He was very rusty in that fight and he fought an Ovin St. Prue had a, broken arm for about two and a half, three rounds, I think. Um, and he still didn't, he still didn't look particularly convincing, but he won the fight comfortably. Um, and, but he, he, he knows, he knows when to, he's like a great racehorse. He knows when to get two, three lengths clear and then maintain. And that's basically what he, you know, what he tries to do in most of his fights. That Gus fight was an interesting one because he was, he was chasing. Gus won the first couple of rounds and, you know, it looked to me, he was, you know, we were going back to the stall after each round and it was like, okay, Jones lost that round. And then the second round, he's two rounds down. He needs every round from here on in. And that's when title fights get really interesting yes. when you've got a dominant champion who, I'm not saying the the uh, the rounds were absolutely clear cut, but there was a relative consensus that, Gustafs, uh, that, that Alex Gustafson won round one and two in that fight. Right. Um, you look at most people's scorecards when they've scored the fight to Jones, they've given him three, four and five. And yes. I think the judge who scored 49, 46 might have given Jones the opening round. Cause the first round was pretty, was pretty tight. But, um, but yeah, so that, that, that was the other thing that made that Jones fight so interesting because possibly for the only time in his MMA career, or certainly the only time that, that I can think of, he had to chase, he had to push the pace rather than let people come onto him. He had to go and win those last three rounds to keep his title Uh, and he went, he went and did it. And uh, that's, that's just another notch on his belt. When you you sort of list in the criteria, why he's, if he's not number one, then he's, it's one, A, one B with, uh, with mighty mouse. Um, You can sort of take your pick really, but he, his ability to game manage and win any kind of fight um, is, is, is what stands him apart from the pack for me. And, and that, that was the perfect example of that.
0: Yeah, and and that's also where most guys falter if you're, you know, if you're banking on, you know, the athlete to to or the overconfident guy or the one-shot knockout guy, you know, once you get him out of that first round or whatever, once you get him in deep waters, whatever proverbial saying you want to throw in there, he passed that test and he wasn't even prepared for it. And which is yeah. the crazy stuff we learned in in, in hindsight. Um we're going to go over someone who was prepared to go into the deep waters probably later on my list, but Allow me to segue to number three um, as far as another classic. But before I segue, let me just say this one, John Jones vs. Gustafson, is not going to be on my list for this episode. Just understand that it deserves to be there and will be on there for the truncated version. I just know this one's a... You've covered this one as well uh, 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 as far as uh, you know, I- I- interviewing uh, the fighters and, and doing a, a VO piece, I believe, on Junkie Simon. So I had a feeling, in other words, that this was going to appear on your list, so I left it off banking on my co-host and he didn't let me down so i'm gonna go with another classic one um this one it could either justify it as number one justify it as off the list or um a contrarian like me you could give me crap for even having it on my list like dan i thought you're better than this man you're supposed to be the dude that's like not picking the obvious stuff i don't think anybody has that opinion but whatever um let's just say uh but no um this one I i couldn't deny it though it's a classic one and it, it's also a personal one for me as well, which is Forrest Griffin versus Stefan Bonner 2. No, just kidding. One, one. Uh, <laughs> was this, though? no, we're not doing top five forgotten fights. That's a forgotten <laughs> fight, right? Jeez. I, I think Fight Pass wasn't even
1: carrying it up until recently. Like <laughs> They're hoping to do a like Men in Black moment and just sort of shine the light and just forget that one ever happened. That was all fine. I, I think so. Um, but before I push on, was this on your list, uh, Simon? This was number one. This was number wow. one. I mean, my number one and number two, you could flip a coin. So, I mean, this could this could have been my number two. I went with number one. I went largely because of the historical significance of this one, put it over and above my my number two selection. But you can make arguments either or. So I've got plenty on this. So you fire away, my well, man.
0: Let me set it up for you. Uh, like we're playing volleyball and I'll serve it up to you, Simon, and you, you, you slam it home, all right? Uh um, because it. my, because mine is, is a lot of it's personal anyway. So, uh, y- y- your stuff will come in perfectly, but obviously, uh, not to get too much in the historical, which, which my cleanup hitter will, will, will cover me there. Obviously an important one. Historically, we all know the story as far as the UFC essentially gambling on themselves and the Fertitas uh, at this time. Um, and, and what that was, of course, this wasn't actually the headliner, the headliner, was Ken Shamrock versus Rich Franklin. They were banking on pulling back in an old name. They kind of reestablished, I I mean, it's always been kind of a tenuous relationship, right? The UFC and Ken Shamrock. And as I'm watching this fight, by the way, Forrest Griffin versus Stefan Bonner, uh, just a side note, on one of the pillars, you see kenshamrock.com on there, and something tells me they would not normally go to to, uh, bat um, as far as that first choice, because they already have Zions and things at this point but in other words i'm I'm just doing a little inside baseball. I think there was a that was definitely part of the inside deal to get Ken Shamrock to come back and lend his name they let him they let him blast the side of the octagon there with his name but uh Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner are fighting in a venue here called the Cox Pavilion. Now I want to highlight this part of it um because it doesn't get talked about because it really shouldn't it's It's kind of a side venue out by next to one of the casinos all, all, you know it looks like a big back lot building like it looks like a giant Costco that's empty. However, um, before mixed martial arts came into popularity, this was used for a lot of martial arts buildings. I grew up doing taekwondo as a kid. I don't, uh, I don't count uh, any of the ranks or any things I earned there because I was a kid. I don't think kids should earn a black belt if you're under 18. But I did compete on the national level, and so I, I, would, I would travel all around. But when we went back to Vegas, a lot of the tournaments were there. Later, as I got older, my teenage, uh, later teenage years toward adult years was Kenpo Karate. Um And a lot of our tournaments, of course, they use the old Cox Pavilion again. So, I mean, this was, as far as a young Dan Tom going into martial arts and competing, there's a bit of a bias there, right? So now, um, I've kind of moved past, again, like I talked about at the top of the show, I, I moved past the traditional martial arts part of my, you know, uh, martial arts experience into MMA. And I'm seeing these guys, because I'm a tough noob, by the way, folks, like, I, I was aware of MMA in the late 90s and early 2000s, but I, I couldn't tell you who was who until about this time. It's about this time because I was a tough noob. I came in with all of the uh, fans that once this 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 matchup created, um, I, I came in with that. So when I'm watching this fight, and I'm not watching it live, mind you, um, I don't have a story where a friend called me, I'm sorry, I don't have that story, but I did watch it very shortly after and bought the DVD as soon as it came out. And I was just blown away to. I'm falling in love with this new sport, Simon, called MMA. And I'm watching one of the most iconic fights, or what I w- i didn't even realize how iconic it was at the time. And I'm seeing them do it in a place where I've thrown punches and kicks almost my whole life. And it really, it really just fueled me in in a slight different reason, but but based off the same event as everybody else, and took me on this ride into MMA. So for that reason, I'd be remiss if it wasn't on my list. Absolutely deserving to be your number one. Uh, take the steering wheel, sir. Uh, yeah real, i mean
1: sir. the uh i was just going to give you a, a very very short history uh sort of a throwback into history the thing that got me into mma i was on my stag party which bachelor party as you would call them uh okay. over in the states i was at a go-kart track and uh me and the guys we should we should not have been anywhere near anything you should drive after the alcohol we'd drunk the night before, <laughs> That's, that's I think we were, I think there's more fumes coming off us than there were off the go-karts but um we were there we were waiting for our turn on 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 the uh, on, on on the circuit and we're all we're all suited up we're standing there just waiting for the group um ahead of us to finish and there's a there's a small portable color TV hanging on the uh, hanging on the wall and it showed what looked like a flyweight against what looked like a heavyweight in some sort of white roped ring. And we were absolutely wrapped by this because there was this tiny little guy. He had like the Croatian flag on his shorts and uh, he's fighting this huge, huge black dude is Bob Sapp versus Mirko Krokop. Right. And, uh, we were like, well, okay, let's watch this guy get absolutely squashed. And Mirko hits him with a straight, I think he hammers him with a few body kicks and then hits him with a straight left. And then, uh, breaks uh bob taps orbital bone and he goes down and he's crying like a baby that was my introduction to watching oh, martial arts on tv gosh. we then uh, after my bachelor party and the uh the massive hangover had subsided i then discovered a tv channel in england called bravo and bravo used to show it was just started showing the ufc and the first thing that they started to show was tough one and uh so I got in on the ground floor with Tough One. They were also showing, um, so it was Tough One and episodes of UFC Unleashed, um, and that's what and that's that's what we used to get.
0: Yes, um, and I know. So, that. I remember
1: those days. Yes. So I followed Tough One all the way through. Watched the entire series. Was at, it was on sort of the sort of time when you get home from the bar, you know, you sort of get home from the pub on a Friday night or a Saturday night, and you're channel surfing. You think, oh right, there's that Ultimate Fighter thing. I'll put that on. And uh, so I became hooked by that very quickly. And then obviously we got to the we got to the finale. So um, I was already invested in most of the most of the fights on the card. You know, having watched them all go through, I wanted to see Josh Koscheck get his head caved in by somebody, winding everybody up in the tough house. I wanted to see what crazy stuff Diego Sanchez would pull in the finale and all that sort of stuff. So so then you get the you get the. uh, See, most of the fights were pretty much blowouts. I think it was pretty much knockout finishes all the way through the card, which was great for TV. But they weren't all that competitive because there were guys on that tough first season. There were guys who were clearly ready for the move up, and there were other guys that clearly weren't. And that was kind of how that card was match made. I think there are a lot of guys who weren't quite weren't quite ready. Um, and you know, it was a lot of one-sided fights early on in that yep. card. Yeah. And then and then then when we got to griffin and bonner it you know it, it was one of those where having watched them go through it was like okay this is going to be a proper fight because both of these guys are clearly nuts yeah we, you know we watched their we watched their antics in the house um you know at some point Forrester dyed his hair ginger at some point i don't know who does that shaved but he his head did. or something yeah he shaved like I think he dyed it ginger and then i think he got like ginger shame or something and decided I've got, i need to shave this off so off it came but yeah i don't know i mean I. So we knew that we, we knew this was going to be a good fight, and then it didn't disappoint. They went in there, and they threw down. And here's one for you. I don't know when you first watched it. I thought Stefan Bonner won that fight when I first watched the fight. I came, When when they were standing, standing in the middle, obviously I'm not quite I'm, – I'm much more attuned to MMA scoring now than I was when I watched it then. But I remember watching it, and I know that they were scoring it a 10-point must for every round. And, you know, I've been watching and writing about boxing for years before then anyway. So watching that, and it was a largely striking based matchup. Right. And uh, I thought, OK, I think I think Stefan edged it. I think Stefan edged it two to one for a 29-28. So it ended up being unanimous decision for Forrest, which came as a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, but then you had that magic moment, didn't you, at the end where um, they called an order ball and... It was like the, per- it's the sort of thing, if you put it in a movie, everyone would go, oh, that's corny. You can't do that. You yeah. know, that's just, that's just, you know, you're going for the cheap pop and all the rest of it. Where they turned around and said, oh, we're going to give them both the contracts and Bruce Buffer's punch in the air and all the rest of it. it was, but that was exactly the right thing at that time. Yes. It just felt right. And, you know, all the, all the, the sort of the legend of the deal being done in the car park afterwards, um, my understanding was that deal might already have been done, actually, and they were they were in the process of getting it ready, but it might not have been inked. So, you know, there might have been the final the final bit was being done out back. But, but yeah, I think just the sheer historical significance of that fight. Yeah, there've been better fights, right? From a technical standpoint, that was a scrappy fight, right? That were there was a scrappy fight, and I think both guys would probably look back at that fight and go, yeah, we probably weren't at our cleanest, slickest, best in that fight. But they know, put on a hell. They put on a hell of
0: a fight. I was still and impressed. I was still impressed with the fight, though. I went back to watch it recently, and maybe my expectations were low because I, I was expecting what exactly how you characterized it. But they're they're actually still doing some stuff in there where I'm like, hey, like I forgot how good of a transitionary fighter Forrest Griffin was. He's you know jack of all trades, master of none kind of guy. He really embodied that because even in early Forrest, I'm like, oh, I see. I see why he was able to outwork guys he maybe shouldn't have, minus the knee surgery when he fought Shogun Hua. But you almost see how he gets these upsets over the Shoguns and the Rampages of the world, uh, much less winning a fight that, to your defense, Forrest didn't think he won either.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was one of those. I mean, I thought I just thought that Stefan, and I guess this is my my in- You know, everyone has a bias whether they want to admit it or not when they're looking at a fight it's very hard to not go in with some form of bias, whether it's from stuff you've watched in the past or you've seen more of one guy than another guy. But maybe it's because I watched a lot of striking based, uh, fights in the past from watching so much boxing. But I thought Stefan was a lot crisper and a lot cleaner. And I thought his shots were a lot more solid. I thought Forrest by comparison, his technique was more ragged, but Forrest was roughing him up as well. So you know, having gone back and watched it since, I've haven't, I've haven't rescored it. I might have to rescore it um, under current rules and see whether it might turn out different. Imagine how different history might have been if Stephen Bonner had won that fight. I was. Yeah. Would they have done the same thing with the contracts? Would they have still? I, I assume they would
0: have done. See, that's tough because it, it's hard to know. Um, I, I, I would have been curious on what it would have done to Forrest, uh, more so because you know, uh, even though he is still synonymous with the sport, still works at the UFC PI, he didn't seem like he really had a tough time walking away from this thing, Simon. And he didn't really seem like he had any too much flirtations of ever going back. And after a couple losses, like I know the, the Anderson Silva loss was really tough. He, you know, he came back in the gym like weeks later and he was like almost 300 pounds. It was the heaviest he's probably ever gotten in his life. Like there was times where maybe he maybe almost stepped off before. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here with him being a cop and being, you know, decently experienced more than people realized before that show. Like, yeah, does, does, does maybe he... Does it affect maybe his trajectory more than Stefan's? I think, I think Stefan pushes forward regardless. And I think if this fight was scored nowadays, I think first of all, I, I know people hate for whatever reason when you say, oh, should have been a split decision over a unanimous in any sort of context. But let me just say that if that fight gets judged under today's context, I do think it goes to a split decision. And I would not be surprised if Stefan takes it. Uh, because I think especially at that part of MMA... Uh, go look no further than Diego Sanchez fights for like from that point to like, you know, five or six years after to when he fights Ross Pearson in New Mexico, like MMA rewards the guy who goes forward, regardless if they're hitting air or not. Whereas mm-hmm. Bonner was actually landing the more cleaner shots. Bonner was a boxing and taekwondo guy. So he was actually keeping range much better. However, he was choosing to fight on the outside of the octagon, which is still a dangerous proposition today, as we see with guys like Anthony Pettis, right? Another Taekwondo guy from that area. Nevertheless, uh, I actually would, uh, you know, I I, I kind of leaned when I was watching it, rewatching it. I'm like, I don't know, maybe I score it for Bonner the first two rounds, but Forrest, you know, he has that strong rally in the third. But yeah, you could you, yeah. know, you could still argue that fight. It's you know so.
1: Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the the, the Diego Ross Pearson fight, and I know you did that. Um... Worst was it? Worst decisions or worst? Uh, we did stop. Worst I don't officiated. think we did decisions yet, but that—that that, that oh, was would it. Be worst stoppages. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, stoppages? but decisions. Yeah. You're, you're
0: on the right track. That would be on there for sure.
1: Yeah, that that for me was 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 pretty dodgy. Um, you know, but I think back then as well with MMA, look, you know, in in reference to this 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 like heavyweight fight, the 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 Bonner versus Griffin fight, right. you, the other thing you got bear in mind is MMA as a sport wasn't being hadn't been regulated for an enormous length of time by then. And the judges, a lot of them who were scoring these fights in the majority of weekends, they're judging boxing matches, a lot of them. So, you know, some of these guys are coming, you know, they're, they're, they're judging boxing matches one weekend and now they're coming in and they're doing MMA matches and in boxing forward pressure is, is quite a big factor when you're looking as for, for a differentiating factor in, in a, you know, when scoring a boxing match, or at least it used to be. So, you know there's also that aspect as well if you've got if the judges aren't quite as as finely honed in terms of in terms of how in tune they are with the scoring criteria um i mean if you talk to someone like ben cartledge who's from my from 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 my neck of the woods from here in england um he's outstanding he's an outstanding judge a because he's consistent but b if you ever end up having a chat with him he is he he's he can he can explain everything perfectly and like every time I'm at an event and he's judging before every event, we end up talking at cage side for like 20 minutes uh, and always end up putting ourselves behind time. Cause we're chatting about the last fight where there was a iffy scoring decision or whatever. And you know we'd be talking through things and he he's great. He's great to listen to. I might have to, I might have to get in touch with him and uh, have a chat with him about a few things, but Absolutely. he's, he, he's outstanding and people like him are, are a really good reference point. But in those early days, us as us as fans and media members i wasn't a media member at that point but we were learning as we went as well and the sport is was and even the fighters you know the totally, fighters are yeah. more are more refined they're sharper their skills are much more uh are much more evolved and finely honed than they were back then and that, that goes the same for everybody watching and everybody judging scoring officiating everything you know
0: well, that, that was a deep dive on Forrest Griffin versus Stefan Bonner, but a, a well-deserved one, and that, that that's well-deserved to, to end up at your number one. I apologize
1: for sinking your battleship. Um, I might have, I might do the same for you in a minute with my number two. So. Th-
0: there we go. Well, How about on that note, just, just to make sure you don't run out of ammunition, I'll let you decide if you want to put something else in for a number one. We'll we'll be an honorable mention by that time anyways, but how about this? We'll, we'll just do a quick Chinese fire drill. I'll jump to my number two. You go to your number two, and then uh, I'll finish on my number one, and you can either give another number one or just go in your honorable mentions on what almost made the list. I'll I'll let you decide.
1: Cool, cool. All right.
0: So, because you also touched on a note that, like, you know, we're kind of surprised on sometimes, I I mean, not just for this fight, uh, the Griffin Bonner, but any fight when you're researching the list. Sometimes you're surprised for better. Sometimes you're surprised for worse as far as the level of fighting at that time. This one... I can almost guarantee if you haven't gone back to watch this fight, folks, that if I told you to go back to UFC 22 and whatever kind of MMA you have in your head, um, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised to see that the level of fighting, particularly from Frank Shamrock, who was technically the UFC's first light heavyweight champion. Again, it was called the middleweight division when UFC went from weight to deciding they wanted to do weight classes. They decided that 199, 200 pounds and below would be middleweight. And I believe uh, you had guys like Jens Pulver when he was a godfather of the lightweight division. That lightweight division was actually like 170 and below. Um, And like I said, they would eventually make lightweight at 155, which they called bantamweight for a brief portion until reshuffling the weight classes. But technically, um, the UFC's light heavyweight division dates back to 1997 in Ultimate Japan when Frank Shamrock submitted Kevin Jackson. He went on to defend his title three or four times um, uh, till uh, till, till, till splitting ways with the uh with the UFC there, and uh, that last fight was with uh, Tito Ortiz. Uh, as far as that title run of him being technically, although they called it the middleweight, if we're going by what kind of Simon said, this is I'm I'm going by the pride technicality here, okay. Um, this was an important fight also because the UFC, what would be known as its traditional 205 pound division, uh, Tito Ortiz would even though he lost this fight, he, again, thankfully, we talked about what if certain fighters lost. Forrest Griffin, as great as he is, and I'm not trying to take a shot of his character, I was just, there. that was genuine concern, conjecture. Like, maybe, maybe, you know, his, his trajectory differs if he loses. Whereas Tito Ortiz... It's so, you know, it's always in vogue to make fun of him for over a decade now. There's so many shots we could take. It's, it's, uh, it's the cool thing to make fun of Tito Ortiz. And I'm not hating, by the way, like Bo Hachina Depot shouts to you, my dude, one of my favorite follows. I'm not hating on the fun, folks. I'm just saying, don't get it twisted. Tito Ortiz is a really important part of MMA history. Uh, UFC history and light heavyweight history he was a a flag bearer uh you know to, to pardon the pun we all picture him with the flag back in the day but he really did especially through harder arguable dark periods dark ages as you hear them referred to Tito Ortiz was a guy championing through these times in fact coming back to become champion later after this fight um so we make fun of Tito Ortiz, you know, his confidence, his ego, his headstrongness, to put kindly. But you know what? It's a good thing he had that headstrongness, Simon, because he was able to learn from the lesson that Frank Shamrock gave him back at UFC 22. This was an amazing fight. Um, first of all, back as far as, you know, I was just, you know, when, I, when I set this up talking about the level of fighting, you will be surprised. Frank Shamrock's throwing leg kicks, combinations. He's going to the body. Um, He has takedowns, but when he's taken down or when he pulls guard, uh, he does it meaningfully. Frank is immediately attacking. He's doing things like not just a bigger, musclier guy who is also flexible that can go for triangles, but when the triangle fails, he turns it into a leg lock. And if the leg lock fails, he uses the leg lock to create space and get back to his feet. I mean, these are techniques that guys were only starting to really pick up in modern MMA when you start seeing like the Matt Browns of the world face Johnny Hendricks where it's like, okay, I'm not going to out-wrestle you. You're bigger than, stronger than me, just like Tito was bigger, stronger, a better, better wrestler than Frank. But if I can attack you with submissions, I can create space to get back into the fight. Matt Brown obviously did not win that UFC 185 bout against Johnny Hendricks, but I'm more talking about the technical... Evolution and when we see guys doing stuff way ahead of the game, it's so impressive to me to watch Frank Samrock do this Secondly, it, it highlights something that I love Simon, especially as a betting man um, I, I love fighters like this archetype and they're particularly fun to bet on and and, and Especially if you like to bet on things live um, It's risky to do an MMA. It's a gambit. It's a gamble. It's hard to do an MMA Simon but that is relying on your toughness and wits and you letting the other guy kind of blow out his steam. Now me, I, I look young, but I my body's been through a lot, so I grapple like a very old man. So this is my essentially game plan for everybody. It's, okay, shoot your shot, get, get your excitement out, I'm going to weather the storm. And as soon as you make a mistake or you start having to take breath, that's where I'm going to step on the gas. Um the late Robert Fallis, uh coach of mine had a great analogy for it. He taught his fighters he, he also uh, referred to something called putting down the pack. And I was able to go back and forth and kind of um intellectualize with Robert on this and kind of add on to it with him. And what I love the most about picking up the pack cuz Robert says every fighter is different. Some fighters can take a really heavy pack and they can run for really long distances and they can run longer and faster than you. They're better than you. But guess what? Eventually, they got to put that pack down, Simon. And as soon as they put the pack down, they usually do something like this. Right? You try for a submission, squeeze, 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 squeeze. You don't get it. And it's those little pockets. If you're smart, if you step on the gas in those pockets, you can get huge dividends. And Frank Shamrock teaches us all this lesson. Um, As far as coming back late in this fight, and he purposely loses rounds early He lets Tito Ortiz get top control. He lets Tito Ortiz escape submissions because Tito is expending uh, Energy and Jeff Blacknick who's an underrated commentator. He commentated wrestling. He was a a, an acclaimed American wrestler Okay, a great commentary. He's actually, you know picking up on these things. He's explaining the action very well and he's explaining what Frank is doing, and he's actually calling it. And sure enough, Frank's gamble works. By the fourth round, Tito is tired; he can barely go, and he loses by TKO. This is my number two.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of those great what ifs, isn't it? You know, what if Frank had stayed in in the UFC? Yeah how how would MMA history have changed? Because after that fight, Tito went on and fought Vandley Silva for the vacant title, won. And then went on that incredible run yep. as uh, as light heavyweight champion. That may never have happened. You know, it's one of those it's a proper sliding doors moment in, in MMA history because Frank and the UFC parted ways, and obviously we later saw Frank in, in Strike Force, but um yeah, Vandalay Vandalay Silver versus Tito Ortiz was next. Tito won that fight, he defended it, I think, four or five times, and then uh, ran into Randy Couture and you had that he had that sort of triumvirate with Randy. Chuck Liddell yep. Tito Ortiz um, and that's when the golden age or you know the first golden age of the UFC hit that's yeah. when it really started to really resonate uh, with the public sort of, sort of stateside and with the TV companies um, Frank Shamrock sort of predated that and yeah. arguably he could have he could have stifled a lot of that because for all of, for all of Tito's bombast and personality and everything that he brought to the table Frank beat him Yep. and 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 quite often i've i've got a theory when it comes to rematches it's not a hard and fast theory but quite often with rematches i i i normally see that my 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 sort of default position is if if guy a wins the first fight the likelihood is guy a will win the second fight and probably win it more handily um unless there is a, a an obvious slip up or there's something else if, if one guy is, is clearly better than the other guy to start with, you assume the same rate of development between the two fights, the yep. guy A should still be better for the second fight. And um, so a rematch would have been fascinating to see. Um, would it be an immediate rematch or had Frank come back after after a year or two, you know, maybe solving whatever dispute he had at the time, mm-hmm. um, and then coming back to maybe dethrone Tito? And we you know, that that whole light heavy because back then, you know, we talked earlier at the start of the show that the the UFC light heavyweight division has sort of peaks and troughs, isn't it? Yeah. And kind of. Sure. Is you know, it's sort of peaks and valleys, and and uh, this was definitely just this was just at the start yep. of when that that division started to peak, and th- I'm not saying Frank could have killed the light heavyweight division, but I think the uh, the history of that division could have been very different had he, he not parted ways with the UFC at that point. He planted the seeds for it, certainly. And yeah, I would have loved to have seen
0: it. I would have, I, you know, d- despite being undersized against Tito or like he would have been against uh, a, a prime, depending on how you look at it, Chuck or Randy of those times, I still would have liked his chance. I think Randy would have given him the best fight, a uh, Randy dropping to 205 versus Frank there. But I still would have even took an undersized Frank Shamrock over a prime quote-unquote Chuck Liddell. Um yeah, you know, there's a lot of interesting uh interesting uh things that could have happened uh if he would have stayed uh through that time period. So and you're right, it's just super important. It launches us it launches us into into the era forward. And I like that rematch note. I'm gonna hold on to that, but I do agree with you on as far as this goes, how that would have gone. All right. Uh Simon, I guess it's your adjusted number one, but this is really your number two. Obviously, your number one is Forrest Griffin versus for Stefan Bonner. So what came in as your number two?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can argue that they were one A and one B, and you can you can put them, you know, you can rank them however you like. I mean, I've gone for Dan Henderson versus Mauricio Shogun, who are at UFC 139. I mean this this was a slam dunk pick for me. Uh, the only question for me was, do I put it at number one or not? Um, ultimately, I, I went for the I went for the historic angle. Uh, maybe that's the writer in me. Uh, I, I love delving into the history of stuff and I think that this fight, as good as it is, over time may gradually get forgotten about. Just 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 uh, over, o- over the course of time, whereas I think Griffin Bonner, because of the historical significance, may stick around in the minds of people for a little bit longer. But if you're looking and also you look at the Jones Gustafson fight that we talked about earlier on that was a technical chess match it was a chess match with elbows wasn't it you know um and and it was a it it was a fantastic back and forth matchup but it was a chess match this was a knockdown drag out absolute slobber knocker of a fight and uh different people tune in to watch fights for different reasons and but all of those people love nothing better than a good old fashioned tear up once in a while. You know, you can, you can have your tactical battles. You can have your slick submission skills on the mat, but sometimes you just want a good old fashioned fight in a phone box to raise the old blood pressure and raise the heart rate. And that's exactly what these two delivered in San Jose, November 19th, 2011. Um, Hendo won uh, unanimous decision, 48, 47 on all three scorecards. Um, and uh, five of the hardest rounds you will ever see, like just in terms of the sheer amount of damage being dished out, I think the hardest fight I have ever watched in person, um, and it might even probably be ranked at the top of the list anyway, is Robbie Lawler versus Rory MacDonald at UFC 189. I mean that, yeah, that for me, you know that that, that, that was almost beyond sport. There was you know there was something bigger going on in there you know that was that was just two human beings testing each other to see just how much they can take um, this is in that vein I think I, I wouldn't quite put it at that level it's it's a gnat below uh that fight in terms of just the sheer amount of damage it was being dished out and while obviously people like to focus on that and and you know the offense the thing that I that, that, that I came away from and, and and the reason why that's up there in the list is it's the heart of the fighters. You know, everybody who steps into a cage as a professional knows how to fight. They've all been taught how to throw a punch. They've all been taught how to defend takedowns. They've all been taught submissions, whether it's offensive, defensive. Um, The basic tutoring of the skills to whatever level is is in there. But what you can't teach people is heart. And you could have two people with identical skill sets the guy with the bigger heart is probably going to win because um, they, they can take the fight to places that other fighters just won't go or can't go, you know, their body or their brain just won't allow them to break through that, that threshold where you say, okay, that's too much. For someone like Dan Henderson and Mauricio Shogun that line doesn't exist. And, and their ability to just fight through the pain barrier and uh, put on the sort of show that we had at, at UFC 139, I think the fight's already in the Hall of Fame. I think it it got put in a couple of years ago, and and, and rightfully so. And Hendo started that fight like a house on fire, and it looked like he was going to finish the fight in the first two rounds. Uh, Shogun looked an absolute... He he was going back to the stall a bloody mess by the middle of that fight. It was like, you know, we're wondering if the corner might even stop it. It was was, was getting that bad. And then Shogun found it within him. All those wars that he'd had in Pride, and even leading up to this one, it was like... Maybe he's had too many. Maybe this is one too many, you know. Um, but somehow he came back in that fight and he came storming back by the middle of the or sorry, by the start of the fourth round, Henderson's gas tank was on red. By the end of the fourth round, he was running on fumes, and then in the fifth round it was all shogun as he was desperately trying to trying to get a ten eight. And under today's scoring, I think he would have got it as well. I think so too. Um, yeah. And yeah. and the, you know the fight would have ended up a draw. Draw. That's how I scored in, it in, in yeah. that case. So, but under that scoring then yes um, yes perhaps it, you know it was a, a, a little bit more borderline and all the judges gave it a 10-9 which obviously wasn't quite enough for him uh and he lost 48-47 but it's one of those fights that leaves you exhausted just as a spectator watching it and it also makes you wonder what they're you know what both fighters are thinking at the end of that and how long it takes them to recover not just physically but mentally those fights live with you i'm you know they they, they have to they have to. Um, and I don't think, you know, po- with, with the possible exception of Rory MacDonald and uh, Robbie Lawler at UFC 189, possibly the most brutal fight I've ever watched. Um, and uh, I don't say that to, to glorify the violence of it. It was, these are two supreme athletes prepared to push themselves beyond levels that anyone should ever have to push themselves in the field of sporting sporting endeavor if you like um and uh yeah it's that close it was only the historical significance of bonner griffin that stopped this from being my number one
0: i know what you mean I, I went back and forth with this one too um this one it's gonna be on my truncated version of the list uh, i left it off to talk about um, a less popular shogun fight and also I, I had a feeling you were gonna have it and again you uh you didn't let me down so so So, good. I I took a gamble and not officially having this one on the list, but obviously it deserves to be there. You could have it as high as number one. Um, And for better or worse, you're right. These guys really brought that limitation out of each other. And you're also right that people were already questioning if Shogun already had enough wars then. Forget everything he did after. Keep in mind, folks, this was only the second or third five-round non-title fight. Uh, The first one was Mark Munoz versus Chris Lieben that the UFC did. Um, this, this was not very, maybe, maybe the second one was maybe Poirier zombie. Like this was amongst the first five. Okay. So it shouldn't have played an issue on the judging more. The time period did like Simon said. Yeah. But yeah, it was a weird kind of a fight too, because we weren't used to it. So the fact that we have this crazy fight three rounds in and what we get two more rounds, like you heard the excitement of Rogan, who was still calling non-pay-per-view events back then. Right. And this was in San Jose, and I, when I went back to rewatch this, shout out to listeners Mindra, Mike, and Kendra, their beautiful family. I saw them uh, the, the uh, right before the fight starts. They do the crowd pan. They're right there, and I'm like, hey, I know those guys, and so I wanted to shout them, listeners of the show. And this also took place on a night where one of my favorite MMA fights happened, which was Michael Chandler versus Eddie Alvarez. One is happening the same night as this, by the way, which is like an insane. Talk about the MMA gods. It's like they're are they being good both to on us on the same night. Like, giving us both of those is insane. Like, the pick between... Thankfully, they didn't happen at the same time. I can't remember. You were able to digest both of them separately um, as far as the crossover came. But it was a fantastic fight, and it brought the best out of him, especially because this is both this fight and even um, their second meeting in the UFC. It's probably the last time you see Dan Henderson meaningfully use his wrestling in his career. He goes through stretches, even between both their fights, For this fight and their next fight. He really doesn't use it much. The reason is, is because, now people who've been watching Shogun or other fellow analysts, this isn't a surprise to you, but Shogun is really a ground-and-pound fighter and a wrestler, folks. I say that kind of jokingly, but not really. Um, we think about the soccer kicks. Well, how does he get them there? Uh, and, and the ground-and-pound finishes and pride and all those finishes. He was taking guys down with outside trips, body-lock takedowns, Uh, using his athleticism, and he was taking guys down and beating them up. He still does that today as an old veteran because timing is one of those things. And for better or worse, uh, as we saw through rounds four and five of this fight, uh, Dan Henderson versus Shogun Hua won. Shogun Hua can fight when he's compromised. That's how he's been able to fight for so long since this fight because his prime has been long past. I mean, his knees were gone by the time he got to the UFC. We weren't seeing the top Shogun Hua depending on who you ask. You know what I'm saying? So this was just an amazing example of that. And he's still able to, granted, because Dan Henderson is fatigued at certain points, out-wrestle. Nobody takes down and out-wrestles Dan Henderson. I mean, for all the wrestling critiques, you could be like, Dan Henderson not using his wrestling enough. Like, The dude was a a rock wall. Like, no one, aside from Daniel Cormier, was taking this guy down and manhandling Dan freaking Henderson. Um, So to see Shogun just, like, finishing the fight on mount... And they're lucky that Josh Rosenthal just let that ride out because it, it could have been, you know, it could have been, it could have been fuck all with the scorecards if they stop it. And that fifth round when he's mounted for, what was it? What do you have him mounted for? Like the last three minutes, Simon, it felt like. Yeah. The
1: it, it was one of those. it was, it was, it was just constant. It was constant. But I mean, Henderson was doing just enough, you know, he was moving yes. around and, and uh, he wasn't just a sitting duck getting smashed. He was, he was at least defending himself. Um, and also, it was at the end of the fifth round where I mean Shogun was knackered as well, but he wasn't quite as fatigued as uh, as Hendo was, so he was able to keep keep up a little bit of that. But if I think if that had been in like round two, I think we could have seen Hua sort of unload a hell of a lot more and maybe push for the stoppage. But at that point, the amount of, the amount of punishment those two guys have been through is a, it's a miracle. They were both walking around at the end of the fight. It was, it was an incredible, incredible piece of work by both of them. Um, And uh, yeah, you know, we talked at the start of the show about some of these fights leave, leave the fighters changed afterwards. And this, 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 this was the perfect example of that. And, uh, you know, we've seen Hendo, Hendo defied his years for quite a while after that. I mean, talk about brutal knockouts his knockout of Hector Lombard at UFC 199 is one of the most brutal knockouts i've ever seen live oh, geez. Uh, it was it was like a back elbow kind of like that and then he just absolutely smashed him on the floor with forearms and elbows and and you know that that was past the age of 40 as well i think and you know he's he's been around and doing it for so long shogun's been in there and has has been fighting against absolute killers for his entire career but that one was a that one was a special one. I yeah. think both guys, if you sat them down, they'd both say, yeah, that was a good one.
0: I don't know what's more in that Shogun was only 29 or that Dan was 41 when, when this fight happened. But speaking of spinning stuff and speaking of rematches and speaking of Dan freaking Henderson and speaking of number ones with historical importance kind of just edging this fight out, right, Simon? It's a perfect segue to my number one, if I may. Go for it. And this one has Dan Henderson. But the difference is... Have it having Dan Henderson winning is he gets the finish too, which is the one thing. And again, we're splitting hairs. It's an amazing fight, but if we got to split hairs on the list, this one gets a finish, and it's got the historical importance. I knew it was going to be on this list because it's one of my favorite fights of all time, off one of my favorite cards of all time. So why not put it number one? And that's Pride Thirty Three. Dan Henderson defeats Vanderlei Silva in the rematch. He lost the first one. Vanderlei Silva, granted, he was coming off of a knockout loss, so he was fighting a little more defensive, whereas Dan Henderson, who was fighting on a conservative run prior to that, was fighting much more offensive. In fact, a seldom-spinning blow that Simon just referenced against Hector Lombard, probably the only other significant one we really saw Dan Henderson hit, was the spinning backfist before the knockout blow against Dan or against Vanderlei Silva here of course Vanderlei Silva I think it was what was it seven seven years as pride middleweight which of course qualifies for light heavyweight as we've covered on this program you know um granted there's some some trickiness with some non-title fights and some decisions there aside from that Vanderlei Silva owned this division you know um uh, you know after like you said he he uh you know, he, he loses early to Vitor Belfort and Tito Ortiz, but he puts that part of his career behind. He is the axe murderer, right? Um, and this is Las Vegas. You got Chuck Norris. You got uh, Nicolas Cage in the audience. So who's, who's celebrity, right? You got Frank Trigg, who just fought the, the uh, prior on the card. Now, all of a sudden, he's changing into his monkey suit. He's calling the fight with Josh Barnett. Like, it's insane, right? And and it's a, it's a good fight it it really is you see Vanderlei's ground game you see some of his under, underrated grappling um we see uh Vanderlay Silva despite getting knocked out with a left hook he actually rocks and almost finishes Dan Henderson with a left hook at the end of round 1 what's interesting about that is that most of the pride rounds were 10 minute rounds correct well pride 33 folks was the first uh, or one of the first one of the first i should say Vegas fights so they were run running under the Nevada State Athletic Commission who would not allow those rounds so this was a five minute first round and at the end of the adjusted five minute first round Dan Henderson is like out on his feet he's doing the thing where he's smiling which most people do they smile when they're hurt Dan Henderson doesn't do that like you knew Dan Henderson was hurt because he probably didn't realize he was smiling because Dan Henderson goes to the wrong corner which makes you wonder that what would have happened if this was the traditional pride round. You know, does 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 Dan Henderson, does he maybe survive, but he just ends up kind of on that downhill losing trend that he was when he first fought Vanderlei? But nope, yeah. Dan Henderson gets saved by the bell and he breaks that trend that Simon re- referenced that tends to happen with rematches because this isn't a washed up Vanderlei Silva. I mean, Vanderlei Silva's on all the supplements at this time, folks. He's thick. I mean, these guys are both pretty thick, but let's just let's not go there. It's a great fight, um, and, and and Dan Henderson, of course, is one of the best exchanges. It was on my top five hook KOs because it's where you miss the right hand and you know that left hook's coming. And Vanderlei Silva, just like Fabricio Verdum against Stepe Miocic, and a lot of these guys do where it's they lose their title because of a pride game. And I think you you you, you mentioned another example earlier where someone gets hit and they want to get it back, right? They want to get it back. And Vanderlei wanted to get back that spinning back fist. He stayed in the pocket too long. And Dan Henderson hits him with his left hand, which is my most favorite thing about the finish. Everyone knows Dan Henderson for the H bomb, the right hand. but yeah. Gets him with the left hook. Before Vanderlei even wakes up, you've got confetti coming down. The pride music, right? That's great. It's classic. I mean, you don't get that even anymore in MMA and it's it's just it's amazing. Maybe it's cuz I miss people cuz we're not around people the social distancing Simon, but it's an amazing scene at the end of the fight that does nothing to do with the fight, but god damn it this is my number one.
1: Yeah, it was it was a classic KO. I mean, for Vandalay Van Silva is a legend and uh, his career will will stand the test of time um, as someone who fought during the real golden era in Japan and yep. uh, then moved across and fought in the States fought for the UFC and, and had some semblance of success in the UFC towards the latter end of his career before eventually, eventually age old father time eventually caught up with him in the end. But, um, he's also known for being on the wrong end of two of the most devastating knockouts in MMA history. I mean, there is that left head kick from hell from Mirko Krokop, uh, which is probably the greatest head kick knockout in MMA history. And then you've got that huge left hook from Dan Henderson, which if you watch that knockout back, I think he caught Vanderleigh basically standing completely square onto him. Uh which is not a place you need you, you know, you really want to be standing. You always want to be slightly slightly one shoulder ahead. You don't want to be you never want to be squared up like that. And um because you've got nowhere to go. And uh when you're squared up like that and you've got nowhere to go and you've got the and uh you're facing someone with a punch power of Dan Henderson, that's a really dangerous place to be. And uh yeah, he absolutely absolutely uh Finished him off with a huge, huge left hook. Um, I've got to say, I, I, I miss Pride. I miss Pride. Yeah. I, want, I want, you know, great point about the the, uh, the five minute opening round in Vegas. Uh, again, I think we'd have seen a different result. I don't think I don't think Hendo would have won that fight with a ten minute first round. And you know, mentioning sort of supplements and saying their prayers and taking their vitamins and all that, like they all seem to do over there yeah. during during the Pride era. The ten minute round really did really did uh really did sort out the uh those those that were on the good stuff and those that perhaps weren't um yeah. because being able to fight an absolute professional savage for 5 minutes in 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 a ring uh in all, virtually no holds bar uh contest um is bad enough but 10 minutes Ten minutes, you know. Ten minutes, you you know. You could you could kill a guy in ten minutes if you weren't fully trained, you know. So I, I, uh,
0: sorry, I was gonna say I remember that arms race. By the way, as far as the supplements goes, like you even hear the commentary acknowledging it. Like for for a second when they talked about Brazilian top team, they'd be like, oh yeah, he's don't forget he's a Brazilian top team guy, and those guys have figured out their cardio. Yeah, they they come in very prepared. (laughs) (laughs) And like I was like, figured
1: out their cardio. Like
0: what are they doing down there that everybody else is doing, guys? Out with it
1: yeah no it's it's well i think what what was it the contract said it was i think the contract said you will not be drug tested absolutely. i think i think that's basically he didn't say um don't take drugs or you can take drugs it was just just to let you know guys no drug testing here and it was like okay open door open door we'll just we'll just let yep. you crack on and uh i mean i i absolutely do not condone it but it made for some incredible spectacles over the years and uh yeah, I mean those guys. I guess they all knew what they were getting into, but whew, we yeah. had some, we had some, we had some spectacular stuff down down the years in the Pride era, and it's a shame because that that Pride event in in Vegas that was that was pretty much the tail end of Pride, wasn't it? It yeah. didn't, it didn't, it wasn't that much longer after that that they sort of fell into fell into financial issues and end, ended up the USc ended up purchasing them um, that same year, yeah. You know, if I mean, you know, the, the deal might even have been done. While they were over that week, you just don't Shoot. know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? That
0: is very true, Simon. We got ten minutes left to knock out honorable mentions, uh, mentions, and listener list. But before I get to the uh, listener list, um, I, I feel like I robbed you of a number one. So, was there one that almost made the list that could that could stead here that was just so close that you you hated leaving off?
1: Uh, I've got four here, and cool. I think some some Choose, of them are controversial them insofar as. Some of them have no place on this list whatsoever, but they're worth mentioning from a personal point of view. Uh, they're all notable. I'll do them in chronological order. Oldest first. Cool. Vitor Belfort versus Vanderlei Silva, UFC Brazil, Classic. or UFC 17.5, as it was known. When they did the by point five. Like yeah, oh, yeah, the old It's Nothing like having half an event extra when you need it. Um, October 16th, 1998, uh, Vitor Belfort wearing wrestling shoes, um absolutely destroys Vandalay Silver with what can best be described as a as an absolute salvo of punches. Literally runs across the cage like he's got he's controlled by some kid with a video yes, game controller. Yes. Um and uh, just just absolutely destroys him in forty-four seconds, I think it was. Um that was worth mentioning. I didn't include it uh because he was fighting at 199 and I didn't want to blur my lines too much, but that's worth a mention. Vandalay Silva gets another mention. Brian Stan versus Vandalay Silva. Great UFC fight. on Fuel TV 8 in Saitama, Japan. Up until not that long ago, referee Mark Goddard said that was the greatest fight he ever officiated. He was the man in the middle for that yep. fight. Um, but he since <laughs> he since refereed uh, Israel Adesanya versus Kelvin Gastelum. So now he has a new number one. So, um, which I think is fair enough. But that's Stan Vandley Silva. The last fight we ever saw. Brian Stan inside the, uh, inside the octagon. And uh, he obviously went on to be, uh, be a valuable, a valuable uh, resource to the UFC as, oh, as an analyst. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think we still miss him. I, I'd, I'd love to see Stan back. I know he's off doing other things. I think he might have a shareholding in a, uh, is it real estate? He's working in. Yes, now? I,
0: think, I believe so. Yeah. I think
1: he's got a, a holding a, a real estate company. So, um, but yeah, I always had a lot of time for Brian Stan. That was an incredible fight. Vanderlei, Vandelay took that, on home soil, if you like, in Saitama. In, yeah. in yeah. And uh, one that would never make the list, but I, I want to mention it just because I was there. Um, it is the latest finish in UFC light heavyweight history. The biggest comeback in UFC light heavyweight history. It happened right in front of my very eyes. I was literally feet from it when it happened. UFC London 2018 or UFC Fight Night 127. March 17th, 2018, scotland's paul craig yep the bear jew himself against magomed Ankalaev. mark my words magomed Ankalaev will fight for the ufc light heavyweight title within the next 24 months he's that good he's beginning to prove it his career's had a couple of little roadblocks but he's only ever lost one fight Dan. and this was the fight and he only lost one second of that fight he, he absolutely dominated Paul Craig through all of round one, through all of round two, and for four minutes and four minutes and fifty-five seconds, I would say, of, of, of the uh, of, of the third round, it was all Ankalaev. Like Craig was trapped against the fence on his back, getting absolutely smashed. Ankalaev throws his legs up, trying. Uh, sorry, um, Craig throws his legs up, triangle arm bar. Ankalev taps at 4:59, finished incredible incredible so i had to mention that and the last one on lauren song versus ken hasagawa at one championship spirit of a warrior if you want a really up-to-date one um find that fight online i'm pretty sure that one championship would have put it on their youtube channel I
0: think they is. put a
1: load of their fights on there that's an absolute barnstormer of a fight um maybe not right up to the level of some of the fights we've talked about on this list from a stature standpoint <clears throat> but Ong Lauren Song is an absolute savage he's another guy who's got that ability to fight through anything and everything and uh him against Ken Hazagawa who was I think he was either Pancrase open weight champion I think he might be the Pancrase or the deep open weight champion um that was an incredible incredible fight and it finished with like a fifth round knockout uppercut huge huge KO um that's well worth digging out as well so that's my they're my four honorable mentions.
0: I like that you got that in there too. That's 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 a good one. Um as far as that Paul Craig selection, who doesn't like Paul Craig? And I don't disagree with the ankle Uh of man. Southpaw is a, a heavy-handed southpaw at that weight. Um, all right, again, follow the podcast at the PyM Podcast to contribute to the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Real easy to remember. Uh, Jordan at JYork87, who's co-hosted this year's show before. His list is Griffin Bonner. Great choice. We covered that one. Jones Gus, also on our list. Hendo Shogun one on our list. Chuck versus Vanderlei. I mean, you want to talk about a buildup. And and, and I, I, there wasn't a finish, but it was still a really good fight.
1: Yeah, it's um, cracker.
0: And then personal pick, Machida Rashad. Hey, we had that same personal pick, Jordan. My man, my man. He also says, uh, honorable mention, any Sean O'Connell fight. And I'll just throw out there Sean O'Connell versus Steve Bossay. And Sean O'Connell oh, versus Vinny yes. Magalash.
1: The Steve Bosse fight, I remember that. It was one of those where you're just watching it on the TV going, This is insane. Yes. These two guys, it was just it was just insanity. Um out of how their they feet, were how, how they feet, were standing taking those sh- Yeah, absolute insanity. Um but yeah, I remember that fight. And Sean O'Connell obviously's gone on and he's doing a great job over there with the uh, with the PFL now, play by play.
0: Absolutely. I'm a big fan of Sean O'Connell as well. It's another guy I can't help but root for. Benny Abs at Benjamin Abrigo on Twitter. Over there from Fansided. He's got Hendo Shogun 1. Classic. Gotta have that. He's with me on the Tito and Frank. Awesome. Uh, he's got Vanderley and Rampage 2. I love that finish more. Uh, that's that's the one where it's the knees and he's just hanging there. I believe that one... What was that one? Was that the Halloween 2004 one? Was that the I first think, time? yeah.
1: Back? Or is that second the time, where second he, one? He sort, of, he sort of fell on... His head was sort of hanging on the ropes a bit, wasn't it? If I yeah, I believe
0: that's the Halloween day back in... is uh, it Shockwave 04? It's in oh four. 04. I always get confused. Um, he has Shogun versus Noguera, and that's going to be on my honorable mention. That almost made the list, Simon. That was a close one for me. When we do the truncated version on Junkie, you can count, you'll see that one. That's a good hardcore one to go watch, folks. Uh, I recently went back to watch it when I was doing that little half-guard dive, and you see some of uh, Little Nog's half-guard in that game. You see a lot of just real awesome MMA things as far as just... You really see the game pick up as far as level. We see a lot of themes... A lot of scenarios and exchanges that would repeat itself throughout the golden eras of MMA. As far as things on the technical side, we see it in that fight. Very technical, and again, it's which it shouldn't be a surprise. A south, a talented southpaw boxer like Little Nog was getting the better of the exchanges for the most part, but but Shogun was getting the takedowns, ground and pound, and also just really getting emphatic moments at the end of rounds, which were saving saving his butt. So he got a yeah. unanimous decision win. Spoiler alert, but it's a very close and competitive fight worth rewatching. He also has Jones Gustafson. Of course, we can't argue that, right? Yeah. Um, of course, my man Iceman Win who I'm going to get on here as a co-host at Brass Check from the MMA Analysis Podcast. He's uh, of course giving my man Benny some crap. He was talking about uh, Jones Gus being criminally overrated, but uh, uh, of course we we kind of covered that and and also discussed why you know. Um, w- why that's why that's fair if you want to take that stance, but also why um, you know why it's also a great fight still that stands the test of time. So a lot of opinions on that fight, which I find interesting, which is cool. But here is Brad Chuck's list. Okay, he says I tried to make the list. I tried to make a list mixing the top five best and the top five biggest, but there were too many. Hipster pick, Manhoff versus Cyborg One. That is a hipster pick for sure. I was looking at some Melvin Manhoff uh, earlier. I think I referenced it uh off the top of the show, but he also fought at middleweight as well. So you gotta be careful which one you pick. That's a good one. He also has Vanderlei Stan, which we just covered. Um yep. Yep, uh, uh, Mark Goddard, yep, that's right. He was he was that one. Uh Tito vs Ken One. Wow, Tito vs. Ken One. Okay, that was the best one of their trilo- of their trilogy, so yeah. I remember, I'm pretty sure it's Tito vs. Ken 1 where, this is what I love about Big John McCarthy, because especially in the early days where he just seemed like this ruthless, unthinking cop that would just beat you and beat everybody that he pulled over. Like, you know, when people just kind of had that image of him. Like, he really knew how to placate to, to, to tough men's egos as well. He could be that caring guy if you watched. Like, when he saves B.J. Penn from Matt Hughes after the first TKO loss... And he does the same thing to when he saves Frank Shamrock from Tito Ortiz. I believe in that fight, Brad. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but he goes, he stops, and he goes, "You're a tough motherfucker, Ken. You're a tough." Mo-. And he's playing to his ego, you know, making him feel better because he knows he's not yeah. going to be happy that he got the, his ass kicked and the fight stopped. But like, I don't know, that that stoppage always just burns in my head for that one. Um, he has Shogun versus Little Nog, which we just covered, and Hendo versus Shogun. One his honorable yeah. mentions: Frank Tito, Chuck Tito. Vanderlei Rampage 2 and Basse O'Connell any any comments on any of those uh Simon
1: I mean this is this just demonstrates how many amazing fights there were at that light heavyweight division over the years I mean any any of these lists could be could be held up as a completely legitimate list and I think it's just it's down to personal preference and how you how you go about ranking these things you know we talked about you know, the criteria, the best thing for these criteria is, is for it to be open. I mean, you remember when uh, we did the Fighters of the Decade for MMA Junkie? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Simon Samano said to us, the criteria is entirely yours. You know, I, all I want is your, is your was it your top 10, I think it was, or top 15. And um, just, I don't care how you get to it. If that's your top 10, that's your top 10. You go out and rank them in whatever way you see fit for yourself. Um, and because of that, we had a wide ranging set of uh set of selections, which made it particularly interesting when, when the fight you know, when, when when those uh fighters were eventually announced uh in order. And I think it's the same with this. So, you know, people like different things about watching fights. You know, some people just want to see two people beating the snot out of each other. And then there's other people who want the you know, the the, the sense of occasion. They want it to be for a title, they want it to be in a big arena or they want an underdog story or they want a comeback or, you know, there's so many different angles you can take for this. And there's no wrong answers because if they're your favorite, if they're your favorite five fights, they're your favorite exactly, five exactly. fights. Exactly. Uh, and, and you know, no one can tell you you're wrong um, because they're your picks. And, you know, there isn't a fight there. I mean, even my Paul Craig and Kalayev pick, which from a, from a stature, quality, uh, right. historic standpoint – probably well, it doesn't stand up against anything else that we've mentioned but it was relevant to me as, a, as an honorable mention because literally i could almost have reached out and touched uh, paul craig's head before he threw the legs up for the triangle right he was right in front of me um and the fact that it was so it was so late and literally no one saw saw that saw that thing coming you know um and because of that, that sticks in my head. It resonates with me. So it'll that that, that goes on my honorable mentions list. You know, it'll stand.
0: And- it'll stand the test of time. That's for sure, Simon. So, let me just yeah. get one last honorable mention list in here. I forgot. I'm trying to advertise more on Instagram, uh, so I feel bad if uh, I don't give a shout to Accelerated Athletics, who said Jones versus DC, Jones versus Gustafson, DC mm-hmm. versus Johnson, DC versus Silva. I think he's a DC fan, but thank you for the for the. Uh, uh, co- contributing and Machida versus Couture. Oh, that was a tough one. I watched Randy Couture get knocked out in Extreme Couture. The kid. Yeah, right. yeah, because yeah. it was up in Canada, so everybody, you know, we're going to support Randy. We all pile into the gym. There's like, there's like twenty TVs there. The second part of the gym's already open. Holy crap, it was like it was like it must have been what it was like a smaller ver, uh, clearly smaller version of what it must have been like in Brazil when uh, Fabrício got knocked out by Stipe and everybody just went quiet. <laughs> that was the yeah. gym. That was the gym for that one. But not not to rush us out of here, but we are we are out of time, Simon, man. This was awesome. We covered a lot. We haven't done a 2-hour episode in a while, but it was well worth it for this topic, and I'm glad I had you to unpack it with me. Thank you very much, man.
1: Appreciate being on, you know, I love getting on and talking fights. So, uh, you know, and, and when there's so many great ones to talk about, it's not hard work, is it? It's easy, easy getting on and doing stuff like this. So continued success to you, my man. And, uh, yeah, hope, hope this one goes over well.
0: Thank you. Anything to plug, uh, 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 before we get out of here Twitter address, anything at all?
1: Yeah, you can, you can follow me on Twitter at Simon head. I am on Instagram at Simon head sport. Uh, and stay tuned there may be a little bit of uh, podcast related news coming from me in the not too distant future but i'll keep that under i'll keep that under my hat for now
0: all right i'll be I'll, you know i'll be looking out for that uh th- th- thank you guys for listening again you can follow me at dan tom mma at the pyn podcast on all social platforms and to support the podcast you can go to mixedmartialanalyst.com that's where you can find smartphone friendly players i'm going to get us on the stitcher and the rest of them as well not just on itunes course we just started a YouTube episode where a video version of this, if you're not already watching it, hello, will be up, please subscribe to my channel, I gotta figure out what to do one of those bit.ly's, cause right now I just have the, you know, www.youtube.com, until I get like a certain amount of followers, then it allows me rights, so you guys can just honestly, the best way to help the show is, is hitting subscribe, I won't spam your feeds, uh, sharing the podcast, those are all free, or if you are gonna spend money, you don't even gotta spend money on the show, but everybody's shopping at Amazon, which I feel... Terrible advertising because I, I kind of hate Jeff Bezos and the brass and what they're doing. Another episode, another episode not here. But if you're going to do some shopping there at Amazon or at it they've got great hep protein, vitamin C to stay healthy this time. Go to MixMarshallAnalyst.com. We have all the banners to the right. You just click through the banner. It's an extra click or two. You're off doing your shopping. It takes no extra charge from you. just kicks a small percentage of the show back to this shit show. And like I got new lights for this show, we'll have a new camera set up the next one. We'll, we'll keep it coming, thanks to you guys. I will do my part by trying to continue to provide content for free. Um, thank you guys for supporting the show. Simon, thank you for being on. Support my guests as well. They're not just on here because they're good guests. They're good people who do good work. So until next time, always you know the drill. Protect your neck.